Hello, and welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Glynis, and I'm here with my co-host, Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? Hey, Sean. Hey, Wiseman Podcast listeners. Um, doing normal. How's it going? Good, good. <laughs> um, today, we're, we're gathered here to speak about... <laughs> Wiseman's sixth film, Assane. Assane. God damn Assane. 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 When I don't say it for like an hour, I don't know. I don't remember how to pronounce it. Assane. Um, which is uh, an interesting film. We, we talk about it a lot uh, with our, our guest uh, later on. Our guest, Peter Labuza, who we were... Um, happy to have on a joy um, yes um but uh, a couple of things uh are like a, a little bit of housekeeping before we get into it uh we talk a lot uh during that uh discussion about an article by nalita fashani who was on our third episode uh uh the law and order episode um and her article is called uh frederick wiseman's a scene the duality of Mary and Martha, um, which the Journal of Religion and Film was nice enough to give us early permission uh, uh, ahead of their October issue. So um, it's very cool that they uh, let us do that. And it's uh, also a, a chapter from her forthcoming Weissman book, right? Right, right. Um, and thanks to uh, her article, but also Anderson and Benson's scholarship, um, we know that this film, a scene, uh, which takes place on this, this monastery, um, which, you know, it's not introduced in the film where this is, you don't know. And the title, uh, which is, uh, more elusive than, uh, we're used to with Wiseman. Um, you just don't know where this takes place and you see some outdoor stuff, but really it could take place, you know millions of places uh but thanks to their scholarship we know that this monastery which was it was previously connected to an abbey in england uh, once it became independent wiseman was granted permission to shoot uh this film which takes place in uh three rivers michigan uh it's specifically saint gregory's abbey in three three rivers michigan which still exists um and is pretty close to where i went to undergrad in kalamazoo and also where I first met you, Arlen. Oh yeah, I was uh, my sister also did her undergrad there, and uh, we had a beer over her graduation, and uh, which I proceeded to spill all over my shorts. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like Wiseman was was you know permission granted, per permission was was granted to him following a vote from the brethren of the saint saint gregory's abbey and and um, after he'd been uh denied by uh catholic monasteries right, right. Of, four yeah. of them three or four roman catholic monasteries so but um but yeah so not just that from the abbot alone but like all of the brethren um gave him permission which is interesting and um like when you think about how intimate a lot of this film is um, I guess that that is, you know, that's cool, you know, that they all <laughs> consented to that, uh, but also kind of gives you an idea of like, you know, this is a community, like this is a film about a community. Um, and we, we can talk about that plenty. 
Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think more than any Weissman film up to this point, it's also a film um, about generational difference and, and sort of transitioning uh, of lines of thought and, and power between generations. And I think it's interesting just that sort of, you know, uh, historical note that that once they gained independence from this from the English church that, that that's when they were able to do it. And the Abbot in the film is sort of this, uh, mediator between like old and new ideas and thought and generations. And, um, you know, this seemed to be his, his kind of, I don't know, like coming out party, I guess, like, Hey, Mm -hmm. you know, like St. Gregory's is independent. Now we're going to do this crazy documentary thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, framed it that way, the generational stuff, because it is really uh, striking how much, um, how much, how, what what sort of like a diverse text this is. Like, there, there's a lot in this movie, which is just like 86-minute movie about a monastery, and it's a religious film at the same time that it's a film about uh, generational divides, and it's also about community and within all of these things it's about Wiseman's larger project about institutional life in America um so I think it yielded quite a a, quite a lot of discussion notes from us and like our discussion with 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 Peter is uh pretty sprawling um and was very satisfying yeah I mean like you know it's interesting a few of uh, the scholars note that like this is kind of the most streamlined Weissman in terms of like number of scenes you know there are a few really long scenes that play out and as opposed to you know like a lot of relatively shorter scenes um and you kind of get the impression right off the bat that there's going to be something a little different about this film from the title card right it's Mm -hmm. got this like stylized font to it that you don't see in other Weissman films and then uh, straight from the title card, the first shot, uh, going in, you know, with this being a film about an aesthetic monastery, um, the, the monk just like in his Daisy Dukes topless, (laughs) you know, doing yard work. It's like, what's, what's happening here all of a sudden? Um, but like, you know, and then, you know, we, he's kind of brings us back to where we, we kind of thought we were going, but, um, Nalita, yeah. Nalita noted that was an opening sequence uh, referring to labora ora et studium, uh, work, prayer, and study, which I guess you know is kind of um, makes up life in the in the monastery. Right, right. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a uh, we. We talk about, or we kind of like come to the conclusion that this is like a, a transitional text for Wiseman, um, and so I mean, it's it's not a great place to start, I don't think, um, especially it being like the first film that is a, not a public institution and not supported by taxpayers, um, and we also like kind of talk about like. I don't, it was helpful for me before, uh, or after watching it, before talking about it, like to have a better understanding of how monasteries operate, um, which you don't get from this film, but it's interesting to know about like the commerce of monasteries and how they survive and 
you know, um, I don't know what the, you know, uh, acceptance, you know, the admissions process is or anything like that. Um, but I, I do, I, I wish that we were able to see the, see more about like how they sustain themselves basically. Um, yeah, I, I mean, know. it, that would, it, is it kind of like, like a, I don't know, like a Amish type of situation a little where they're like producing goods and yeah trading the, yeah yeah like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but and but i'm sure that there's also more like it, it it's probably pretty specifically uh i mean pretty it's probably like when they got independence from the abbey in england i'm sure that that changed a lot like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing that changed their funding a lot too. Right. Um, so I, I'm sure that there's a, a lot more to be seen uh, from this monastery, but, um, but we get what we get. Yeah, I mean, I assume there's some levels of community support. You know, there, there are a few scenes of sort of public services. You know, I think uh, most notably there's this um, one that. Uh, depicts kind of a, a series of hugs i guess is the best <laughs> way to put it where where i guess the the abbot is kind of like transubstantiating god's love into hugs and then like you know passing it down a line of fellow uh, monks and then these kind of um uh, anonymous uh, members of the public who are you know dressed normally and, and with their families um, so there's there's some implication there that this isn't you know a completely like cloistered off organization that, mm-hmm. that there's some kind of um, you know interaction with with the larger society or community. Yeah, I still found it uh, useful to talk about it, uh, or we can talk about it as like a society removed, like within the Wiseman Project, a society removed from institutional life, and like. I got the feeling he was asking the question, like, can can a community fully remove itself from institutional life? And, like, if if you do manage to do so or if you try to, how independent really is your community from these, you know, institutional frameworks? Like, and, I mean, like, this is extra textual, I guess, but, like, are we there's they're sort of the pregnant question like because we're socialized in america under institutional life like is that all we know and is that how we're going to function you know like this sort of like top-down uh, approach that the monastery that we see here really does have as much as it, as it is communal um we see a lot of like bicker bickering and gossiping um right. and ways to deal with that type of uh fraying of the community um in ways that is like institutional you know like finding yeah. evidence and trying to deal with like problematic attitudes like this is all stuff that um is a part of the institutions that a lot of us work in yeah i mean we we talk about it a little uh, deeper later on with peter but like like the the extra challenge of this particular institution being that everybody has basically removed themselves from the larger society uh uh, separated themselves from the communities they grew up in to try and create this community so it's like 
this organization of, of people who, for one reason or another, you know, wanted to escape, wanted to get away, wanted to isolate and insulate and contemplate. Um, and, and that seems to lead to some like extra challenges, um, in, in their sort of organization and, and keeping the community, you know, functioning. Yeah. And Mamber talks about, uh, what, what also that does in terms of how we read the film is that it removes individuals identities from their institutional purpose. Like in terms of reading, you know, this is a Wiseman film, like you don't have the doctors or the policemen or the teacher and the student type of roles, like instead you you have these you know it portrays people according to their purpose as an actor in this community um yeah it's it's really interesting too because there's you know we've already talked about how we don't get much context for um you know the monastery but for the individuals as well relative to other Weisman films you know like in hospital for instance we can kind of make inferences that the people we're meeting you know live around Harlem um you know grew up in a relatively you know uh, specific set of circumstances here you know it's like people could have come from anywhere they could have come from any kind of socioeconomic level like geographic um like they're you know that everyone's pretty much a blank slate until they start talking or until, you know, brain uh, focuses the camera on them and, and you start to paint pictures of what you think the biographies of these people might be. Yeah. And, um, Peter wisely in our discussion talks about sort of the racial makeup of these, uh, uh, of this, this community. And I don't know if it's fruitful to talk about it more, but like, I guess, you know, most of them, like 90% of the people here are white. Uh, and I, I don't know, is it useful to think of like, if we do consider like, you know, all Wiseman films are one text, like we talk about in every episode. Um, does that make every film about race, including this one being about like this secluded group of men in the Midwest, uh, that are, are mostly white and, I don't, I don't know. Is, is that a fruitful uh, thing to talk about? I mean, I, I think that any conversation about um, organizational institutional structures in America is kind of, you know, the racial component is inescapable to some degree. And I mean, there is the kind of baseline fact here that this is like an Ang- Anglican church, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, you know, itself primarily a white um, institution. Um, but it, you know, I think because it's cloistered off and because it's self-selecting, you know, there are those questions of, well, you know, are, are people turned away? Cause that, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. I don't or like think. the privilege yeah. to be there. Totally. Yeah. I mean, but, um, when we're talking about, you know, the, the one big text question, I think there's a really helpful bit in this film um, that sort of is, is the thesis of all of Weissman, um, where the abbot is um, kind of teaching a, a class, basically, he's up at the chalkboard, and he says... Um, you don't really deal with man. You simply impose a Sabbath or a system or a uh, letter upon him. In order to be able to stand mystery, 
whether it's God or man, you've got to tame it down, uh, get control of it. And this is the age-old temptation. If you can control God, then you can stop the divine mystery from intruding upon your life. And if you could tame man and get him organized in one way or another, you could stop the intolerable mystery, which is uh, almost meaningless. It's so big to human nature. So, like, you know, this that that's the struggle right it's like like uh, uh putting individuals within these institutional structures how do you control how do you maintain order how do you like limit individual expression and and uh individual like reaction and um make everything sort of predictable within this uh institutional structure and institutional language laid out so it's kind of like you know, at, at least Weissman to date, you know, kind of like a, um, a meta examination of, of all the, all the films when you put it in that context of like, well, how successful or not have all of the institutions documented in the previous films been to this, you know, specific point. Yeah. And like, you really have two players in this film that sort of like marked this, like, um, this, uh, opposition from each other like they 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 work as like these opposing poles and kind of like goes into this generational thing that you uh, brought up up top of like you know this older gentleman who is clearly not interested in in like uh, a communal lifestyle but is there like it seems to be his yeah. life right um and then you have a a young man who is uh interested in theory and much more like revolutionary approach to religion and communal life blah 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 and um it is interesting that when you when you talked about uh individuality and ways to contain that 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 this this film really does like view like i said like fr a, a, a community fraying like that's what mm -hmm. wiseman's interested in is is where where is where are the loose ends in this community and um it doesn't seem to embrace, I mean, how could you embrace like this crotchety old man who's like not, <laughs> not really interested, but um, it doesn't seem to be like embracing multiple individual uh, attitudes to make up a com community. Like um, a professor of mine once said, like, who's from Canada, like said, it, I think he said something like in Canada, instead of a instead of a, a melting pot, they call it like a, a tossed salad or something like that. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so you have like these different parts that are just like next to each other without molding into each other. Um, and like that, that's what this should be, right? Is like this, this, uh, more of this salad type of thing where it's like, yeah, we're all here and we're different, but we're, we're embracing each other's differences. Um, and it really does like match up, like you were saying with what, with Wiseman's looks at, uh, views at institutions when you see this like sort of like idea of containing for the sake of everyday communal life yeah i mean it's it's interesting because as many sort of like different viewpoints or, or opinions you know political social otherwise are expressed there's no direct pushback or refutation really of, of anything there's no nobody says like you know don't don't say a prayer for those monks or like why do you keep talking about elizabeth fair this 
therapist in New York, like, you know, ev- everyone is, <laughs> is sort of given space to just, you know, express what they want to express, except Brother Wilfred is kind of this, like, fly in the ointment, right? And, like, like this one kind of, like, cranky, crotchety dude um, uh, is the, the source of this fraying, right? There's a whole meeting amongst the abbot and other monks about, like, the Brother Wilfred problem. Do you think, from what you know of Bar and all the rest of it, uh, that uh, he would cause a... <clears throat> uh, he would blow up. Uh, not blow up uh, as a as a postulant, but uh, he would suddenly be, become a, a very divisive element. At the present time, he isn't. At the present I time, don't... he is. Hmm? How's that? <laughs> um, well, Brother Wilford can't stand the ground he walks on. Well, now, here's the point. If the community will support me in decisions I make, I, I can be yeah. a, a novice master that at least is passable. But if, if I'm going to have people in the community who fight the people I bring in or the abbot brings in, it's hopeless. Well, of course, uh, we've had this with our dear brother from everybody who's been here yeah. since he's yeah. been Well, I've spent most of the, not most of the times in counseling with Bart, Bart this summer on this one thing and how he can, what he can do in order to not avoid Brother Wilford, but what he can do to help the relationship. Uh, well, but what I would Yes, he's well, been very hurt, and at one point said, I will leave if I'm causing him too much pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He said, I well, do not want I, to I cause mean, who's that. Who's being divisive? But, uh, well, uh, we, uh, our dear brother is being divisive, but we have to face this fact, which I don't think we do face, obviously, that every single postulate we have had, and every single person who is now in the community, and that includes the abbot right straight down, right. Brother Wilfred does not like. Basically, like this guy doesn't want to be in a community. Essentially, you know, he's he's taking people to task for using their first names, and um, uh, we don't know if it's literal or not. But beating people up, right, to some capacity, they say, like, like it's it seems like this is a guy you just like don't want to cross, um, mm-hmm. and and you're like, yeah, well if that's the case, if he's not looking for community, if he's not looking for brotherhood, um, as much as he talks about the title of brother and how much that means to him, as opposed to somebody addressing him by his first name, um, he doesn't seem to be interested in, in what that title sort of implies. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, we talk a lot about sort of the the big scene for him, and that crystallizes a lot of this this potato peeler scene. Um, but going, but like connecting that with um, with the New York mention, the mention of like this therapeutic group in New York that this guy was a part of, yeah. which is so funny. Like it's hard not to be like all right dude like like <laughs> just think like or that the brothers are like dude why are you obsessed with this yeah he's like, like really hung up, up on it you know <laughs> it's like and you want you wonder like is this monastery like his way of trying to just recapture that sort of like group yeah. therapy time for him like yeah, like he, he's sure. always trying to like steer conversation in this direction you know mm-hmm. to the point of like 
you know, people are praying for the victims of the atomic bomb, and he's like, you know, uh, throwing out for Liz Fair. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, um, and which therapy is another uh, sort of like you could throw that up with the other topics that this film is also about. Um, but uh, it's interesting, like this mention of New York, because like this this film is so like you know it's a monastery it it is so closed off well i feel like we've talked about this with with other ones too we we definitely talked about it with basic training but it's so interesting when we get uh sort of like pores opening up from the outside uh world we sort of get like these um mentions like it sort of connects us to to the to the broader world even though we are getting something so cloistered but um the the new york scene as well or the the new york mention as well as like especially the the potato peeler scene um which barry keith grant talks about how just seeing somebody go into this store like marks a world in opposition to the monastery hey what's up today well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, brother bernie wants a potato peeler one that works he says that's just the kind we got yeah well we knew that the only thing we require, Herb, is a fresh potato. Well, I asked him what he's to... Do you want to start there and hunt? Oh, here we are, Herb, right here. Did you ever use those? Don't cut yourself. That's awful sharp. What's the matter with that? Here's one. Here's one my wife likes. Did you ever use that? No, don't care for that. We got one of those. It's listed on those that don't work. No, the one... Here's a picture. It, it, this wobbles yeah. on well, the stem. Well, now, now, just a minute. This, this does, too. This is, this is the same principle of that that you saw. You see, you grasp this, and, and this has the moving blade. Yeah, but this, I'll tell you a little difference on that. This one, you pull to you and take your fingers with it. The right. other one, you push against it, you put your fingers over the, there. I yeah. see. Well... It's, um, you know what I mean I'm looking for? Anything you know, I hate to see one of the brothers uh, prostrate on the floor, bleeding from the fingers. No good. No. Okay, no good. Uh, we got another one here somewhere. Uh, well, it's the other one I'm probably uh, looking for. Where is why it? Why don't I take off my glass? I can see better than that. Hey, that's a good screen. That has a little... It has pea, a little floating device on the hood. Yeah, pea pod yes, cutter, too, yes, on the yes, end of it. Yes, that's a bean cutter. Bean, that a cuts bean beans. Stubber. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm after. Listen, could I talk you in this other thing whilst I get the other ones? Uh, there's no reason to... Have you got one somewhere? It's the same dumb thing, yeah, Herb. Cow. Huh? What? It's the same thing, or no. it hasn't got to... Uh, yeah, no, I'm... Um... How about a screwdriver? Hey, that's a good thought. Um, no, I don't like that hey, sort Jack. of thing. You could actually talk me into What's that, that, of course. What's that Baker's name that has a boat shop out there? Bud. Yes. Bud Baker on Broadway, yeah. That's a nice boat. Is it Laverne? Yep, Laverne Baker, yeah. Uh, no kidding, seriously, that is, that is the same principle. How many potatoes have you done with it? Uh, not less okay, than three. I was going to say you didn't have to answer that one. That, that, that is a... That yeah, really see, works. but where's the potato being held there? It's nailed down, perhaps. Oh, he'll hold it in the hand. We've well, got to hold a potato anyway. Hold in your... So I don't see any hand getting peeled there. I just see the peeling thing. So. I'll go get a potato. No, don't do that, old man. I'm not going to peel it. Listen, so really, uh, I couldn't care take less. This out, uh, take that on my, my recommendation. Your recommendation? Yes, sir. Right, if I'll it's not it. right, uh, we'll take it back. You want the potato back with it? I'd like this card back with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess that's about all, then, in that case. Well, how about a rolling pin or something like that? We have a lot of things here we've got to sell. He calls it, like, you know, 
you have the monastery is supposed to be like this socialist democracy and then you have this capitalist consumerism in this shop um and also you know it's what you can think of when you think of new york too this place where everything where the world runs um i i don't know so there's you know wiseman is very very like um attuned to like what this monastery is in the larger landscape of the country yeah that that's interesting i mean like you get a sense i think with brother wilford and the potato peeler and the name and everything it's like like he he may have gone to saint gregory's in an effort to get away from the very people who would go on to become the younger monks i think and then you know he seems to be more at ease more comfortable within the capitalist environment of you know the the store where he buys the potato peeler you know he's jovial um he's just kind of like loosey-goosey joking around with the salesperson yeah right like like this uh, it's like he seems in his element and you're like yeah why are you why are you here dude um you know um but also like do we do we see this um do we see these two worlds of like socialist democracy and capitalist consumerism and say like uh, is Wiseman trying to say like, can social social democracy not work? <laughs> like, is well, it, it doomed to fail? It's it's interesting, you know. The abbot keeps talking about corporate consciousness, right? And like, yeah. like viewing the monastery, uh, I guess, as a corporation. And I mean, there's you know probably not meaning that in in the colloquial sense of the word necessarily of of like you know a. a for-profit company but that that's the language he uses and and the speak is almost like hr talk right it's like you know sort of this um vague uh uh, you know way in which we we seek to through language instill some kind of uh, bonds between individuals um but you know that's uh coming in that's that seems to be like a uniquely american thing you know right like like i don't think the the monastery in england or elsewhere would would probably use that same language but it just um is so integrated into like the american uh consciousness and identity that like uh, probably for that time too it's like you know there's there's nothing really pejorative about it um you you mm-hmm. you probably aspire right to be a corporation because corporations uh, uh connote legitimacy yeah yeah for sure we all we we get uh, just a, a small note um to connect to a larger conversation that we have been talking about especially uh when we talked with adam Naiman about basic training and vietnam being like this backbone um to the film so far all of them it is interesting that we get this mention of uh you know praying for the draft dodgers let us offer our prayers to the infinitely understanding god through his son and the holy spirit for this city and for every city and community and morals and live in them let us pray to the lord the lord have mercy for the aged and infirm, for widows and orphans, and for the sick and the suffering, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. 
the Archbishop of Canterbury, for the Holy Father in Rome, and all of those seeking unity in the Church. For our own deceased monks, Father Francis, Father Morris, Father Gregory, and our two past abbots. Thanksgiving for the dedication of the Barrigans. Zatar, Bob, for all draft resistors in prison. For Elizabeth Fair. For the marvelous harvesting of the Jesuits throughout the year in the Word of God, especially for Pierre Théard de Chardin. For all of those who are dying at this moment without hope or faith. For a peaceful settlement of the conflict in the Middle East. Shannon. For all the lonely. For young people seeking a meaningful knowledge of God that they can relate to their lives here and now. But um, you had to think like this mention of the draft dodgers, like. I don't know. What do you think Wiseman's doing there? Because it's, it, it's, you know, he's shooting hours, right? Like right. He, he, he just has so many hours. And so a choice like this is so deliberate. Um, and I mean, I, who, like, I'm sure that some of it has to do with the, the uh, guy who's saying it, who is like the only Asian man uh, in the monastery. But also like, it seems deliberate as like, creating this through line of uh again connecting this small monastery to the larger landscape and part of the larger landscape being like this context of vietnam that like the whole country is dealing with yeah i mean i, I if i can you know guess it's like i think it's his way of showing how you know everything outside is still present inside the monastery and still creating similar schisms and you know this is a scene where everyone you know and is more or less expressing what's most important to them i think right it's like all these monks are are giving prayers for the things they think are are the most relevant and and most needing of of their you know like holy thought um, so yeah, this, this guy says the victims in Vietnam and the victims of the atomic bomb, somebody else says their old therapist, you know, um, mm-hmm. um, and, and everything in between, I think. So, so it's a way of, of demonstrating, you know, the individual personalities and through that, the, the, um, problems and difficulties of maintaining community amongst them. Um, I think so, just some other things to note. I thought um, Barry Keith Grant made an interesting point. We've talked a lot about, you know, how Weissman's films are in dialogue with films on uh, Hollywood films on similar mm-hmm. topics. Um, and, and Grant notes, you know, compared to what at the time was thought of like the Hollywood religious film, like this giant epic with like tons of extras and like huge, huge sets and stuff and how this is, you know, the complete opposite of that. Um, and really sort of dealing with spirituality, um, as, as one of the main topics and how that is created, you know, through conversation and prayer and, and song, um, and, and as we talk about later, like therapy, you know, there's, I think for me in this, the most, uh, powerful scene is the one between the monk and the nun just talking yeah. outside and this guy's like bearing his soul. You know, you get right down to the fine grain of things. And so sure it's, it's going to hurt. And, and don't worry if it hurts. 
No, I don't worry. The worrying went away a long time ago. I mean, be thankful. The only thing we worry about is uh, the effect it has on the other people around us. But then yeah. I shouldn't do that either because the Holy Spirit takes care of that too. Yeah, but know? love takes in a lot too, you know. Mm -hmm. That's where we absorb each other's hurts. Sometimes we cause them. It's always so misunderstood with my brothers, for instance. They always apologize then after they've hurt and thinking. Yeah. But it's not, they don't understand what they're apologizing for sometimes, <laughs> which is all right too, I guess. Well, they've just, they're just apologizing for an external thing that they see. Yeah. But here we really begin to know each other. Side. That's kind of, we reveal, you can't help when you live close together yeah, like this. You reveal yourself and, and others reveal themselves to you. And you're sometimes, not intentionally, but we, we just touch the tender spots in people. And especially and here, it seems like, in these last few weeks with it, you're laid wide open. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it's from fighting the emotionalism in those meetings or not, or whether it's... Of course, from being laid open by those meetings. So that when all the little foibles and faults of oneself or somebody else comes into it, it's like pouring salt into all those open. It's like taking all this hard skin that was on the outside and ripping it all off, and you have all that nice, fresh skin underneath, and then it's it... It's pretty sensitive, too. Huh? Every little thing hurts. Yeah. And you want love so bad. Well, you are. Yeah, he gives so much to you, and you want to give it all back, and it never... It's, it is... it's being like an open channel, so you can move through. You know, it's... He gives it to us, and then it's, it's for him to take, as he wants to take yeah, it. Yeah. And for others to, to take. That's the hard part. You know, talking about, like, the flesh being ripped off his body, basically, and, and just, like, it being exposed raw. And, like, you know, you you think about how Hollywood might treat a scene like that with, um, as written, like, kind of, like, add a dose of, of melodramatic kind of fervor, but, like, it's, it's so human and, like, like we've talked about before, you know, just sort of demonstrative of, like, the beauty of, uh, unscripted nonfiction filmmaking it's like you just like like if, if you wrote this scene and and it was shot by like DeMille or something I don't know like <laughs> it, it would be a, a totally different thing with like you know this swelling orchestral score and like you know like like we we even we even get this close-up on him and it's like this single tear <laughs> falling down his cheek but it's like I don't know it, it works right it's real um, and, and something we talk about later is like, well, like there is this kind of added performative element here with everyone giving their consent and so few subjects and not so much like coming and going of the people being f focused on, but like for whatever reason in cinematic terms, and maybe that's, that's part of it is like, uh, narrative cinema primes us for some of this kind of expression, but, but it, it works, right? Yeah, it does. And um, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot to talk about in what, what you just said, but like a part of that is about the spirituality of, of the film. Like, instead of like looking at it as like a religious text, I do think it's more, uh, appropriate to talk about it as a spiritual text and the spiritual filmmakers that we think of, like, uh, are like, you know, Dreyer and Bergman. And like, it isn't, um, 
it, it isn't unusual, especially in Bergman, and especially in those like 60s black and white films uh, where like, you know, you would have a scene just like that of like somebody burying their soul to somebody and talking about like how emotionally raw they feel. And, and you know, um, and that's why also, I mean, along with the cinematography, like that's why a lot of the scholars talk about this in conjunction more with the spiritual filmmakers or the transcendental style. Um, Barry, Barry Keith Grant has a long passage on the transcendental style that I think is very, uh, very uh, fun to read. Um, just talking, like connecting with uh, Paul Schrader's text uh, in particular. Yeah. Um, that if you're interested, should definitely check that out. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I hope that people aren't scared off by this or skip over it because it doesn't seem like the prototypical Wiseman film because as much as like it isn't it like there is something that is fascinating about transitional films, right? That like really kind of crystallizes uh, what's on both sides of it. Um, and just as like also itself a really satisfying thing, I think talking about it with you and with Peter has made me like not only appreciate it a lot more, but um, just be able to define it. Uh, because it, when you watch it, it does seem elusive and a bit like shapeless and, and but there there's just so much there. It, it's pretty dense. Yeah, I mean, when Nalita talked with us on the Law and Order app, she she noted, you know, how she had to go back and rewatch yeah. this one because, like, it was just like, you know, at first glance, kind of so um, impenetrable to her. Yeah, and and it does have that sort of um, like intimidating sense about it because it's like, you know, I guess Christianity writ large is like, you know, the central thing about america right it's so overarching and it it bleeds into all of weissman's previous films and and a good chunk of the ones to come you know there there are scenes of church services and churches mm -hmm. and communities and like that's another interesting thing too is like weissman's jewish right and it's mm -hmm. like what what is his interest in christianity and and churches and and where does that stem and i think um i'm jewish as well so there there is this like a bit of this outsider thing right where like everyone does this thing on sunday that you're not a part of and you're like it's it's a bit of a mystery it's like what's it all about and it's like you know hmm. for for me in in like early teen adolescence you know i feel like i was really drawn to scorsese movies because they dealt so much with catholicism and and uh, that brand of spirituality and it was just something totally uh, removed from my own experience, but it's. I, I wonder what role um, Weissman's own, I guess, like you know, spiritual upbringing or lack thereof has in his like. I, w I won't call it a, an obsession, but like his, you know, constant revisiting of of churches and Christianity, and I think it, it's probably just you know because it's so uh, inherently intermingled with like American society and American institutions. Yeah, I. It makes me wish that he did have the notoriety in the early '70s that you know the big like American New Hollywood guys had, uh, like Scorsese and his and his colleagues, because like there's so much to be asking him about this movie. Like there, there's. I would love to pick his brain about this, and I wish that there was more interviews 
to look at or to access about like his time here or his um not only his experience but like you're talking about like his point of view about this like where where is he coming at this from or why did he choose this and like you know we get we have a few pat answers about it but like um i don't know i'd, I'd love to to pick his brain about uh exactly like his perspective of uh of this and why he was like so uh determined to look at a monastery yeah i mean we get into, but... yeah i mean it was it was definitely determined and, and something else we could get into so i won't dwell on it but like you know he could have made a film called church he could have made uh-huh. made a film that was maybe more in line with like the weissman uh project or, or the institutional examinations we've seen so far but he he chose to do something that is isolated again like not not public really it's like not tax supported and in, in so much that it's uh, tax exempt i guess um but like like you know before jumping right back into it and doing so you know in in greater duration and depth than he had at any point previous and it's like you wonder like was he was he trying to feel out another direction and sort of double backed or like was this integral to him in realizing like you know like uh, the the he wanted to bring this level of depth of like you know exploring fewer scenes in greater detail but just adding more scenes and more detail and thus like more runtime to his films because as we talk mm-hmm. about it, like juvenile hall uh, leaps uh to an, an extra hour over these these first uh, six films yeah I'm, I'm excited to to get to that one um and kind of like also talk about it in conjunction with where where it's coming from like from a sane um but yeah do you have any more ground that you want to cover with with this one um i don't know i think i think we cover it a lot with pete i mean like you know this um again like like don't um don't be scared away by this i think it's like i think um but i'll speak for myself but this was my first time seeing it and i think you know to some extent i'm guilty of what uh mamber accuses people of doing with weissman which is like kind of picking and choosing the films that seem the most interesting based on their subject yeah right like and so i kind of not avoided this but like you know there were other ones i wanted to get to first right because they seemed like a bit more lively or more like a, a typical weissman film or or you know subject matter i was more interested in but like there's there's you know density is really the word there's so much here and it's really interesting to try and parse out the ways which this fits into the grand weissman project the ways it's in conversation with the other films despite being like mostly separate from them and you know like like in hospital we talk about all these institutions converging and and the kind of revelation of the big project and mm-hmm. and like on the, on the face this seems like you know like like a, a left turn but but i think through our conversations um you know it's revealed that like you know this is this is really integral and really um uh, connected with everything yeah i think we called it somebody called it like sort of like the capstone of the early films um yeah which I think is a good way to look at it. Totally. Well, um, Oh, there is, um, 
I'll just bring this up. I, I was hoping to get this watched in time for this, but I didn't. But there's um, another documentary called, uh, by Philip Groening called Integrate, Sil Integrate Silence, um, which I've is... seen that cover a lot. It's, it's about a French uh, ascetic monastery. In um, a similar situation, he, the filmmaker, wrote to um, the order in like 84 i think trying to get permission and it was like 15 20 years later he he was granted <laughs> access and um this one is actually borders on on three hours so kind of more of a traditional weissman runtime but i'm i'm curious uh the ways in which these films might be in conversation or how he yeah. might uh be building off a scene in his film yeah um yeah, uh, I've seen that poster a lot, uh, and I, I want to check that out. But also talk, bringing up like what it's what you know films being in com in conversation with uh, this one. Um, I really enjoy the conversation that like at, towards the end of our conversation with Peter, like the connections that we make with some, um, and so I, I hope you guys enjoy it too because it does reveal itself to be like pretty. Um, pretty interesting with stuff that's coming up which, which like i i mean like not all the films of the next you know four or five are like two and a half hours you know like primate and uh even stuff in the 80s like are not all that long but i am excited to kind of like roll up my sleeves and like get to like the you know the juvenile court and like the near death and all that type of stuff that is like yeah it's gonna take a uh, much more investment <laughs> For sure, yeah, and and also sorry not to keep uh, prolonging the transition no. to the combo, but <laughs> <laughs> um, one one thing uh, I just thought was interesting in a scene, uh, and and in one of the past two episodes, we talk about how like one of the hallmarks of late Wiseman is like these kind of like exterior transitional moments oh, of yeah, just yeah. kind of like these like little like 30 second tableaus or something mm -hmm. that bring us scene to scene. I feel like this is the first time we start to get a glimpse of that. There are a few moments like, um, you know, a little like music over a meal time, or there was one that was like a compilation of just kind of like monks in solitary contemplation in the field, like yeah. sitting under a tree, looking at a sunset, like it's like a, a craft beer label or something. Um, but like, like that, I, I think that's the first time really we, we start to uh, be introduced to these like little uh, aesthetic transitions. Yeah. Which will be interesting to see like that rhythm really develop because I mean, in stuff like, city hall or like you know at berkeley the the recent stuff like it's almost like melodic the the rhythms of his editing mm -hmm. uh of those transitions is just like just beautiful in a, in a way that just like editing can be um unlike any other part of film but um yeah i'm glad you mentioned that yeah yeah they're they seem kind of quick here and again there's only yeah. a few there's only a few of them but but uh, you could see him sort of have this idea and maybe not quite hit upon his like signature rhythm, but, but uh, it's, it's starting mm -hmm. for sure. Anything else you want to say before we move on? <laughs> no, I'll never say anything again <laughs> until we talk with Peter. <laughs> uh, well, you can reach us at Wiseman podcast at Gmail. Um, as always. Um, other than that, uh, we look forward to, uh, 
coming back for our next episode on juvenile court with another special guest but um before that uh enjoy the the talk with peter labuza thank you Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. We're here with our guest, Peter Labuza, a film historian and and current instructor at San Jose State, who uh, specifically written on uh, legal history of the film industry. Um, Peter is the host of uh, podcasts, uh, The Cinephiliacs and Framing Media, and has bylines everywhere from uh, academic journals to Sight and Sound, Reverse Shot, Village Voice, you name it. Don't Uh, forget IGN. IGN, yes. Um, most recently IGN, uh, where you're, you're starting to get into the Marvel beat. Is that right? It's so hard to write about, um, film media industries without having a nuanced understanding of the Marvel cinematic universe. (laughs) Luckily I don't have to watch the films, which is the best part of it. I can just write about the industry, watch the trailers and call it a day. That's true. That's very true. The trailers are the movies. Um, so how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm, uh, I'm excited to, um, get, get a little religious here. Um, I feel like I, I got lucky. I've got nine years of Catholic school, though we oh, should nice. talk about what, um, what these monks actually, um, what faith they are. Cause actually it was not clear to me. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely get into, uh, a scene, a scene, a scene, uh, a scene, a scene. I sent um, you the Google pronunciation. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, and they had two <laughs> a scene. Um, yeah, we'll get into a scene, uh, Wiseman's uh, 1972 film, uh, for sure. Um, but uh, so is it fair, uh, Peter, to, to say uh, you're a Wiseman head? Uh, I, I mean, at least you got into Wiseman, I think, before we did, or at least I did. Yeah, I mean, you know, Weissman's like one of those directors, I feel like people go through different like 
phases when they get into nonfiction documentary cinema. Um, right. You first just get into, I mean, when I was like becoming a, a, you know, someone interested in movies, it was like, Oh, I guess I'll go see March of the Penguins and Michael Moore movies. Cause these are suddenly popular and all the critics I'm reading are talking about them. And you kind of are interested in some less than others. I was not particularly interested in March of the Penguins. Um, I think actually the first Weissman film I saw was Crazy Horse. Um, that was the first one where um, after I was living in New York that had a release at Film Forum in New York, where I think most of his films usually um, still premiere in terms of a theatrical release in New York. Um, so you weren't just interested in it because of uh, the TNA possibilities. I mean, I think I, I was 19 years old or 20 years old. So, you know, I think there was a connection between and obviously as a film historian, there's a whole history of <laughs> wanting to see artistically interesting films that also happen to have um, a little bit of dirtiness with them. Um, and. You know, but then I think I went into a phase where I was more interested in experimental filmmaker, uh, experimental documentary, right? This is at the exact same time, the sensory ethnography lab out of Harvard that did films like Leviathan and Monica Mann is coming out. And because I was really interested in, you know, filmmakers like Ho Sha Shen, uh, Siming Liang, uh, Kelly Reichert, right? I was like, I liked seeing those aesthetic preferences in this nonfiction ideas and then I kind of circled back around into the history of documentary and more curiosity about the potential of documentary um and I want to say I don't know when I started I think then I started seeing them regularly after Crazy Horse so um uh at Berkeley National Gallery um I still actually haven't seen City Hall I've been really bad and then I was very lucky potentially for a moment. And when I was living in Los Angeles, um, it was um, the now defunct Cine family, which uh, fell apart in a horrible sexual assault um, scandal and cover up. Um, though I want to say, you know, Cine family was a bad institution, but the people who they employed who really did the work of that um, movie theater were really great programmers. And they worked really hard to do a complete Frederick Weissman retrospective um, that started and got about 10 films in um, before the Cine family, um, the, the scandal broke out. Um, so I got to see about, you know, the, the first, uh, I think I missed a couple, but, you know, eight or nine of them on 16 millimeter um, in a theater. And that really kind of got me into. And then of course, as a, you know, a university PhD student formerly and still with access, the canopy deal has been absolutely um, crucial for like being able to do Weissman. And I got my, um, my now fiance into watching them as well. And she's not particularly a cinephile. She likes old twenties, thirties films, but right. There's something about that Weissman mood that's just so easily digestible. And I think the one thing that I think you, I don't, you know, you guys haven't gotten to the long films yet, but there's something about the length that never feels like you're going on for four or five hours. And, and they're it always also, feels short. they're also like, um, provocative in a weird way in, yeah. in like just like the way that he is withholding uh from or the way that they mark themselves immediately from mm -hmm. popular documentaries while also not being obviously avant-garde there yeah. is a cer certain like 
uh, accessibility, but also provocation there. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. That's why you know, um, last semester I taught um, Law and Order to my students, um, partially because I think they're you know a lot of them are interested in police brutality, and it's just like a very good example of like in terms of the raw footage, but also just in terms of how it organizes its footage. Right, I think it's it's I think like you said, it, there's nothing particularly avant garde that would make someone run away from it as much as it forces you to think about things and law and order was a really interesting example because you know i have students of various um come from various backgrounds various political ideologies various and to see them doing i think the ultimate weissman thing which is you know the five men touching an elephant and all coming away with a different <laughs> understanding of the institution i would argue and maybe we'll get into this when we talk about a scene right is that i think law and order actually more than his later work has a more pointed attitude about what he believes. And I think it's actually only been maybe since the late 80s and 90s that I think he's become a little more cryptic in his messages. And that's kind of actually where I think he's really hit his things. But sometimes the rawness of these early films has such a visceral, fascinating aspect. And of mm. course, what his real character is like, the characters he chooses are always the best people in the world, I always I, I always argue that one of the funniest scenes in the history of American cinema is in um, was it in Hospital? The kid tripping on LSD who vomits everywhere, which is a horrible experience for him. And but the way he apologizes, it's like literally watching a Jerry Lewis film to me. It's so <laughs> funny. And but like to see it also within the context of the institution, right, helps you understand like what the how this institution works in terms of the uncontrolled ability of the world outside that they're trying to control inside. Which, of course, is also maybe the thesis of a scene as well, which is really fascinating to think about. Yeah, it, it's funny. We've we've uh, touched a lot on w certain um, narrative directors that have, you know, owed to Weissman or stolen from Weissman outright. and um, But nobody's talking about uh, Exorcist owes to that scene in Hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that that is that is uh that is definitely one of those pantheon scenes where yeah it is just like, like like we kind of talked about um arlen and i talked about uh a couple episodes ago just like the way that you can't script like what he's saying and it's just so like visceral a reaction and um uh and i just keep going back speaking of law and order to the geronimo scene like there's just like such a beautiful piece of cinema like this woman talking about this guy ask being asked about like this guy just being passed out on the street and her just like just like riffing on who he is for like i don't know a minute a couple minutes is just like such a beautiful bit of uh like capturing natural dialogue yeah and part of what i've been i've wanted to write on this more strongly in terms of things is um, I think we often speak aesthetically of Weissman in terms of um, editing, right? Because it's about the way that he structures and layers narrative. Um, one thing that I think is really fascinating about him, especially in this early work from about 67 to about 75, 76, is thinking about um, actual production shooting context and where where he moves the camera when he is, because I believe in these ones, right? It's one, he's got one camera and one sound guy and that's, mm -hmm. that's it. And 
so much of what I think is fascinating about early Weissman is where and when they move the camera. Um, I think about this a lot in Welfare, uh, which is in 75, is, um, right, it's always these heated conversations between someone who represents the institution who's trying to follow procedure and these people who are coming in screaming about, you know, trying to like survive on the streets and what i think is always fascinating in those moments is when does the camera turn to face the other voice whether they are talking mm-hmm. or whether there's listening i think we see it in a scene well we see it definitely in law and order um and i think especially you know it's it, law and order of course he, they're often rushing or moving because there's events happening there where the individual officers in Kansas City need to move. Um, I think it's really fascinating in films like a scene and welfare where it's about people sitting and talking mm-hmm. and those moments when someone needs to, when they feel that moment that, you know, you have to intuit more than anything else as a cameraman that I'm not capturing what's most important here right now. I need to move my position because this is the thing that's important. And I think it's something that we don't talk about enough with Wiseman is that sort of camera style that is actually really tied to issues of emotion, tied to issues of ethics, tied to, you know, the larger political ideologies that underlie these films. Yeah, and also how we're reading uh, certain scenes like linearity. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, I think a scene is is a really good example to be able to talk about this, and we can we can as we get into that. But I mean, because William Brain just does such like physical gymnastics here, and also interesting uh, movements in the times when he doesn't cut is also interesting. Uh, but what were you gonna say, Arlen? Well, I was just um, gonna note um, in a friend and former guest Nalita Vachani's um, piece, which we might talk about. Um, there's an excerpt uh, from Brain. About just this, um, he says the primary responsibility and the primary goal for him and Weissman is to fit into the environment. Um, So they're very conscious, you know, as they're shooting and doing their sound recording, you know, of the 3D space and and trying to integrate themselves, I think, as naturally as possible. And we've talked a little earlier about how Weissman has said he sort of directs his cameramen in real time by... Uh, moving his boom in a certain direction or they might have a series Mm -hmm. of hand gestures that they use to do certain signaling Um, but I think you're right there's this something that's really exciting when they change angles like it's not supposed to be there and there's this moment where you're stationary there's so much um, you know intense focus on a face or a hand and then all of a sudden you know you get a kind of a jitter you move this way and you're looking at something totally different uh, before it settles again and you're in the next shot and you're you know in in the traditional mode of filmmaking you expect that to be cut right you expect just a shot reverse shot but there's something uh about leaving that in that that just creates this kind of excitement that's uh, really unique to this this sort of filmmaking yeah and this obviously the spontaneity of documentary is like obviously one of the key ways that that separates itself from uh, fictional cinema, even though you can construct it so much afterwards. But I, you know, just to think about near the end of a scene when the um, we're hearing this long story, but the, you know, the stars and the dance, and I'm gonna forget the parable, <laughs> right? But like the camera's very close and almost a little down from the the speaker at that moment, 
And then he finishes the parable and collapses to the floor, right? He, it, it only, it, I mean, obviously it could have theoretically worked from a further angle. And it, but there's something about the moment where the camera is so close, like it almost anticipates and encourages the sort of collapse that follows. And I think it's one of those moments that like it really comes to the core of documentary. But also like I think it's it's easy to be like, wow, I can't believe that happened. But it's also right with Weissman, we always have to think about what we're not seeing, what's probably been excised and whatever. It's like, and, you know, I'm sure that it was like, this happened. We know this is important. This needs to be near the climax of the film. We need to organize it because it represents so many of the ideas we're going for. And so there's so, even when we talk about the spontaneity, it's about the artistic control that spontaneity, that cinema really gives us. Yeah, it's, I was thinking during this film, um, there... I'm sure we'll talk about the potato peeler buying scene, <laughs> but like as that scene starts, um, there's like a kind of blink if you miss it moment where they're both sort of looking at the camera as if like now we start and you wonder, you were saying, you know, what was Weissman excising? You wonder if I would love to see a compilation of like them explaining to the people that are coming into you know the filming situation of like oh yeah like this is fred this is bill like we're making a doc like you know yeah. act like they're not here blah 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 like like i think that would be really interesting to see i think uh th th what's what's also uh distinct about a scene as far as what we've we, what we've uh watched uh prior is that a lot of the meetings and um a lot of the meetings that he's shooting between people uh, is, you know, it's often done like between a desk or there is like mm -hmm. a sense of uh, structure. There is like someone representing an institution and, and a, a citizen. And yeah. I think that there is something that changes the way that they have to shoot it when it is this uh, community and it is between mm -hmm. two people in a community. Yeah, is, is this the first real, I mean, not to say that this is a, I mean, I mean, the monastery is an institution, but this is really his first film that isn't necessarily about a governmental institution. It's the first one that is not tax supported and also not public. So, so okay. this is a, a an Anglican um, Benedictine monastery, which uh, we found out from um, Nalid Vashani's forthcoming piece is uh, St. Gregory's Abbey, which is in Three Rivers, Michigan, southwest Michigan. Um, and it's also his first film in the Midwest, I think, that we've talked about. Um, but yeah. Uh, Look, Kansas, it, I, I, Kansas City is the Midwest, <laughs> damn it. It's not the South. But I, I, I kid, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, oh, oh, and also while we're talking about sort of like uh, aesthetics, um, it's also interesting to think about this film coming out in 1972 and being shot in black and white. I mean, it, like when you're doing this exercise that we've been doing, you, you know, you become a nerd to the presentation of each film because you kind of like know. Uh, mm -hmm. But it wasn't it wasn't like every film in 1972 was in black and white. But Wiseman is, you know, obviously still working this way because of natural lighting. And not like not even yeah. his contemporaries, you know, the Maisels. Yeah. Um, yeah. But mm -hmm. and, and I think a scene in particular benefits greatly from being shot in black and white and is no doubt why like throughout all of the scholarship on this there's like references to dryer and who's afraid of virginia wolf and diary of a country priest but it's a gorgeous looking movie at times yeah the blacks in the cathedral where they perform and do their rituals is uh yeah it almost feels like they're um 
exist in shadow and it's their faces and voices yeah. that are lighting up the space for these rituals and you know i think that yeah that natural lighting and the way that they set their light levels really just kind of creates this um very spiritual space and yeah i could see the connections to you know the greats quote unquote right yeah, there, there are moments that border on you know like german expressionism like really intense angled shadows and um you know bergman is is another one that comes to mind visually but also you know the content of the film mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. all of the you know that's con- rituals rituals and constant um pontification you know constant like interrogation of everything and i mean that's yeah. you know i guess just kind of shifting over to the content of this movie it's like you know there's so much it seems insufferable to live in that mode of, you know, to the point where we're having these philosophical discussions about using someone's first name, you know, like, um, everything seems to be open to interpretation and interrogation and, you know, um, uh, contextualizing within God and, and spirituality. Um, it, it's, it seems like quite a life. <laughs> I mean, I think you kind of get into what makes this one so strange, and it definitely feels almost like, I mean, I think, Sean, you set it up in terms of um, uh, moving out of uh, tax-supported institutions, at least um, maybe not his first film in the Midwest, but certainly his first in sort of a more suburbia, non-urban environment um, that seems very disassociated theoretically from... Um, I think as the article you helped distribute, right, Inter- at least um, outside of the political context of the 60s and 70s, it feels theoretically outside, though, right, it can't avoid it. But um, these are the most articulate uh, Weissman characters, I think, at this point in his career. And I think as you put out uh, Arlen, right, they, they're constantly thinking about their place their relationship to others, their thing, and they're they're connecting it to spirit. They they connect it to um, East Asian philosophy. They connect it. They are so many of them are extremely literate and have lots of ideas. Although many of them, even when they are liter, you know, very well founded in trying to understand their place, are still spiritually a little lost at the same time. And I think that kind of creates one of the tensions of the film is right. Like how much can you articulate your own ideas without necessarily practicing them? Yeah. It's interesting as somebody who didn't grow up in the Catholic church, but grew up in church. Like it was refreshing to see like people who think a lot about what they're saying and be able to, to speak. And I mean, it, even when they, even when maybe what they're saying is maybe like a bit like circular or still like struggling to find uh what exactly they mean like it does seem when they speak to come from a place of care Mm -hmm. uh rather than just like just empty rhetoric which is nice but um we should also mention that that this is also i think the first film where like i mean because maybe because it isn't an institution but um uh a tax-supported institution however you want to categorize it it isn't the it's the first one where you kind of go in you don't know exactly what wiseman's going to say like you know going into basic training what that's going to be about law and order uh titica follies like all of those are, are like pretty obvious and so it creates sort of a gray space that that um uh we come to love wiseman for uh um like this is sort of like seems ground zero for that but um which also makes me wonder like what his 
PBS audience thought of this when it came out. You know, it's just like this strange poetic movie about these monks speaking and, and can almost be described as, as abstract at times. Yeah, and I think the fact that you have these very different perspectives being built in the film that I think, um, you know, I don't want to be too overly kind of suggestive, but just thinking back to Law and Order or even Titicut Follies, um, these are institutions where it seems most people are on board with um, the general ideas. I mean, you know, you get some sort of sense of resistance. Some pe- uh, some of the officers are more helpful than others, but you really do get a sense of like the tight knit closeness of the community. And here's one where like you literally have the most tight knit community. Um, they live with each other. They exist with each other almost at on twenty four seven daily basis. Um, and the tensions that are that, that are created, and it's it's really funny because of course like one of the you know the first beyond the opening pillow shots right that the first true opening scene is this discussion and this one person talks about this therapist he met in new york who did group therapy and how much it created community in new york and then right after he finishes this whole story this other monk goes new york can be a really really lonely <laughs> like dangerous place um without necessarily like criticizing the guy's story or the woman this therapist that he really really loved but like kind of just saying um i think you're full of shit um to say <laughs> to to put it bluntly and like right it creates one of the tensions of the films that they're all they're all trying to achieve the same goal of opening yourself up to communication with god but they all have very, very different opinions of how to get there. And right, that's, I mean, what's so fascinating about all the different characters in this, about their relationships to each other, their differences in age, their differences in youth. Of course, we'll probably get into the Japanese-American uh, monk who obviously represents a very different generation. But I think like that kind of gets to some of the core issues that he's trying to parse out here is can this institution actually achieve what it wants um in maybe in in this time of the 60s and the 70s which seems so turbulent where like we you know we talk about polarization today but where it feels like even within the church there isn't necessarily the homogenous community we expect yeah i mean i think what's really unique about this in uh, relative to the films that preceded it is this is the only institution that's you know you know voluntary right like everyone decided to come here nobody wants to be at bridgewater no one wants to be at high school everyone was drafted in basic training you know um but give even the people who are self-selecting and volunteering for this are themselves sort of misfits or outcasts or people who aren't fitting in and are you know signing themselves up for a life of asceticism and celibacy and um you know removing themselves essentially from larger society so when you try and create a community that's those folks together it it's this really interesting dynamic of people who at once want to be separate i think like you know brother wilfred the first name guy you know he is this curmudgeonly dude who seems to take exception to every other monk in the place um yet everyone's yearning for connection right there there's like this real sense of like yearning to be loved 
um, yearning for some sort of community, but it's it's amongst these people who are like um, self-selecting societal mm-hmm. isolation. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to go to go back to everyone being there because they want to be uh in members early book he pointed out um that this is different from the other institutions we've seen so far in that they are also free to criticize the institution Mm -hmm. like you know we 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 see in the earlier films that criticism was something that was like prohibited or you know controlled uh to a certain degree um where most civilians you know were just seen as another person coming through the system that they had to create this like uh docility in but um but this this discussion also uh, of like these these different identities within this community um i i thought that nalita uh crystallized it pretty well saying that the central theme is uh the pursuit of the sublime alongside management of the mundane um (laughs) Which I mean, it is really funny to think about, and it's it's hard to avoid, frankly, to think about this institution or this community uh, as a workplace, um, or at least in adopting workplace type of uh, framework in order to just like try to manage these things. And we can talk about the structure and the habit, um, but the yeah it, it's it goes back to our discussion of like um not only misfits but uh wise men just trying to find like uh indiv- individuality peeking through in all of his films and this is just kind of like that is the content yeah if anything the one of the things that i wish there had been a little more and you know this is a time when he was doing much shorter films um this one runs i think just barely 85 minutes and i don't know when i think it's I don't know when he really starts getting the, well, the it, time. The next, the next one, uh, Juvenile Court, is okay, two two and a half hours. Yeah, I've seen Juvenile Court, so that's really the first one that kind of just like there's so much to cover, and because I think of the nature of the court, um, things requires much longer scenes. But I wish I had gotten more of. We only get a little sense of the work that the monks do. Um, you know, occasionally the raking. Uh, yeah. We see something with hay, and it made me think that they do some sort of farming. And I kind of and you know. Um, we don't really see any of the cooking or cleaning yeah. that might be. And of course there's the, um, and this, I, I'll, I mean, I'll be critical. I wanted to know way more about the women who are part yeah. of this monastery who, or I guess they might be part of a benediction that's close by or something. I don't yeah. know what the particular relationship with, but this is one of the few times where I'm just like, there's so much more underexplored here in a way that I want to see more. But I think this is, I think, you know, Sean, you put well in terms of the thesis of the film, what it does focus on is almost laser, you know, focused on trying to understand um, these relationships and how they're developing in terms of, um, you know, just dealing with the people that you have to exist on in a place. And I think that's what makes, um, you know, Arlen, you mentioned the potato peeler scene that we don't have to get into, but like that's one so jarring in a way because it's one of the rare times in a Weissman film where we see a character truly leaving and being outside the institution. It is technically work for the institution now, obviously, law and order. They are like all like that, you know, the city is the institution in many ways. But right, like you never see anyone leave Titty Cut Follies. You never see anyone leave the high school. Um, right. This is a rare one where it's like, oh, we're actually going to follow someone when they are truly outside of 
the building and the yeah. you know the real estate that I have chosen to focus on. It's like Bryce Dallas Howard leaving the village. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about with the potato feelings, <laughs> but. Um, but going back to structure, because you were talking about sort of like what's underexplored. And side note, um, I also read that uh, that Wiseman and his crew, you know, were staying at this monastery while mm. they were filming this and they cooked for them and put them up. And it was like, yeah, these people are cooking and we see the potato peeler. There is cooking to be done. Uh, we see them like cleaning up, I believe, for a moment, mm-hmm. but that's about mm-hmm. it. But, but um, in terms of how this is kind of like, if we're looking at this, in terms of his longer uh, zoomed out view of his filmography and where he would go, um, this does have these, like you can see him slowly expanding this established form through a, a continued focus on more like discrete scenes. And um, one of the pieces said that um, this had, the, this is the film with the, the fewest, fewest sequences yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. far. And it's built around like five or six, which, you know, in an 85 minute movie is like paramount. You know, that is the meat of the the movie. But not only are there longer sequences, but at times longer shots. So, um, yeah, this is not this is not, uh, you know, uh, Wiseman at his fullest strength that he develops into. But it's you can see him getting there. You can see him being like having more of an appetite for um, these, uh, you know, just just like letting scenes develop and brew yeah it feels like almost um that this film kind of caps a period the early period of weissman and Mm -hmm. it's sort of um the the incorporation of everything like he's developed up into this point before he goes into this like extreme durational mode and Mm -hmm. and really kind of zooms out like um you know it's it's really easy, I think, to th- talk about why this film feels really different from everything we've seen so far. But I mean, in, in a lot of the ways, uh, a lot of ways it, it is, you know, natural. And, and I think it, I'd, I'd like to ask you guys a question for me is like, why is it this film about um, a monastery and not just like church? You know, why don't we just like oh. have a have a church film that feels like the sort of natural thing than... But every single film up until this point, and and all the writings kind of cover this, has some element of, um, you know, Christianity being, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere a sermon, someone just a A discussion, a hymn, Mm -hmm. like they all have it. It's a running thread. And it's like, if we're talking about, you know, institutions, it's like, is this maybe the place where the sort of dominant American ideology is like disseminated into all the institutions we've seen so far and all those individual scenes. That's such a good question, Arlen. And I don't really know if I have an (laughs) answer because yeah, I'm just, I'm just also staring at his filmography and, you know, obviously we've seen um, churches and from all the way in the early films, all the way to Monrovia, Indiana, there's obviously key sequences in churches, but, um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe because, Right, like I, th- I think as Sean, you kind of pointed out, right? Like the the you can't leave. I mean, you can leave the monastery, but to leave the monastery is to right leave the institution itself and to leave the church itself in that way. And I think what's so fascinating here is 
the closeness of the space of everyone together Mm -hmm. and the way that they're forced to interact in so many ways and deal with right and i think where the the tensions come out i mean the first the first big long um complaining character we get right is about people who use his first name and it's like the whole distillation of what who gets access to using my first name or use is it eddie or right nicknames and things like that and it's only his friends to me uh use of a first name doesn't necessarily mean uh, respect at all in fact rather lack of it Uh, there's an old English saying, how old I don't know, but anyway, it's an English saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Right. You've probably right. heard it. Uh, I can assure you that they does. I do not feel the same respect for a person who, whom I can first name just like that, that I would for someone who has a title to his front name. Mm-hmm. Uh, title or a handle colleague, we don't want to use the word title there. And of course, as I've said, for my part, uh, I don't readily accord the privilege of first naming me. And I do consider it a privilege. And I do consider that it can be accorded only by myself. Now, that's the, uh, what we call it, uh, ethical. You put the name to it, I don't know what it is, part of it. There's also the matter of convenience. If the community had only one person of a name. And yes, some things were not involved, or else they were referred to as Mr. or Mrs. or whatever that happens to be. The difficulty would not arise, you see. But now on deck here, we have already two Davids. Mm-hmm. We've got Don David and David Ram. And at times, we have other Davids. And uh, who's to know which David it is? The thing, of course, originally, I suppose, was a matter of being a baptismal name. And many years ago, um, baptismal names were the thing. But even then, they found it a little inconvenient and added descriptions to distinguish one person from another one. Eric the Red. Or um, William App Jones which is son of. Um, and even in biblical times, there was Judas, not Iscariot. So obviously the necessity, there are flies coming in here, the necessity to distinguish one from another was was uh, felt. We can go through the whole thing, but um, right, it's, you can't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily get that in terms of the institution of a church if they focused on I don't know, St. Mary's Catholic in yada yada town, Kansas or something. Um, I think it has to come out in the closeness. And I think also because one of the things that Weissman's been secretly interested in um, in a lot of films is at least melting pots or clashes. Um, Oh, what's the... There's a famous term for this in terms of um, um, political conservative thought that I'm going to totally forget because I read too much political conservative thought. (laughs) Um, 
but like obviously law and order is a lot of tension between um an urban environment high school we see it as well um i guess titicup follies is a little um more homogeneous in some ways though obviously it's much more based in power and certainly hospital is right and like so i think one of the things he was looking for right is to find a space where um obviously the christian ideology dominates but we are presented with people who are still coming from various backgrounds and ten- and seeing where those tensions are that if it was maybe a more church-based community um you might not necessarily see those tensions which is probably not true there's always been tensions but uh i mean i'm just thinking about also like church segregation is still a big issue in the 1970s and certainly still a big issue today so i think he wanted to see if he could find more of those tensions somewhere in a monastery seemed like a good place to do it but i genuinely don't know because you you asked such a good question yeah it's interesting because um he distinctly asked like three or four previous to to getting acceptance here roman catholic monasteries and was turned down so it seems clear that he was interested in a monastery um so there's like something specific about the monastery that is not there in the church and i think it has to be that there aren't people coming and going uh for these you know uh services but it is um you know we've talked about the institutions as microcosms or at least the films as microcosms of their institutions and I think he really was looking at uh, a community that can be treated as as a microcosm rather than this like sort of way station for people coming and going is like, how does a community act, um, especially like how do they act when they are enveloped and away from uh, uh, like away from bureaucracy as far as, mm-hmm. you know, you know, ostensibly away from bureaucracy. But I don't know. Do you have thoughts uh, to your own question, Arlen? Well, I mean, I just think it's interesting that, like, um, for that reason, that there there aren't people so much coming and going, even though there seem to be some public services happening at, at different times, you know, um, but that it allows really for the first and, and probably one of the primary times in his career, you know, to have some character development, you know, no, like... Sure. Like we have the Abbot, we have Brother Wilfred, we have, um, you know, uh, the the long haired bearded Robert guy, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I, I, what it's funny. There's kind of a opening sequence, and it's like glasses monk, like mutton chops monk, <laughs> bald monk, hippie monk, like. But um, yeah, and I I wonder if maybe he wanted to explore character to some degree, and and because that element you know has has largely been absent, um, except for right, obviously right. there there are very strong figures that appear, but then mm-hmm. they disappear and you don't hear from them again. I mean, what yeah. actually I could not stop thinking about, and in terms of you know thinking about institutions at the time is this didn't really feel like a religious institution as much as it felt like a series of living in therapy sessions. And because all these sure. services are yeah. like 
you know and of course that's the first thing that we you know get a you know suggestion of a relationship to is when the brother explains the famous therapist in new york that you know changed his life right is that we're really getting therapy sessions brother wilfred sequence is a is a therapist the the um i'm i'm totally terrible with names so if you know them but the brother who <laughs> right. uh is cries to one of the sisters and like about his relationship is like very much a therapy session it's like um, watching the work yeah totally um, but, yeah. right like part of what they're doing here is there's a sense uh, you know i mean we are as we as the those of us outside the church are the ones in spiritual crisis who need help and everything but really we get a sense of that all these people are in some sort of larger spiritual crisis for the most part and so the one institution that you know um Weissman's never done is some sort of therapy office, obviously because of the limitations um, in terms of doctor rules, in terms of, uh, I, I don't know if that, I mean, the patient could consent, yeah. certainly, but, mm. you know, that feels like a strange place. And in a yeah. way, this allows him to do, record the, the, you know, think about therapy and relationships of talking and self-help in a space where he could get permission to do those conversations. That's kind of almost yeah, in a way that it replaces really instead of the church. Yeah, that is interesting because um, I, I remember being struck by that on a different level in domestic violence, like mm. just like that being the beauty of that film or some of it is just like these people in group therapy sessions, but not, not presented that way. But it turns out that that is what, what it is for a lot of these people is being able to talk and listen to each other and and whatnot um and you're right uh that this is very similar in that but yeah i don't think we're gonna see like wiseman's in treatment it might be interesting to note here um it's brought up in reality fictions the his uh, parents bio biography and his mother uh, was an administrator of psychiatry at mm. boston children's hospital so <laughs> you know you want it's it's tempting to sort of see how that might play in and and affect you know his interests but um you're right i mean he never did that film probably for some of the reasons you mentioned um but going off of that um because of the cloistered element of a scene you know it's it's implied that there's sort of this kind of radical consent happening in a way that is not present yeah. in other Weissman films and in fact mm -hmm. in um Nalita's piece I believe they mentioned that um uh the abbot would only agree to it if Weissman got consent from each individual monk featured mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think something interesting that that brings up and also is brought up just by you know the nature of this organization I'll call it um is the ways in which performance may or may not be happening in, in mm -hmm. different ways than Weissman's other films. You know, there are some scenes where it's just the camera and uh, someone praying and maybe praying maybe a little more with a little more expression on their face than they might normally have, or, you know, with a, a, a gentle tear. Um, but, but I think, you know, there is that cognizance amongst the monks in this film that like, hey, I'm being filmed, like you said, you know, they're living together, you know, they, they know they're there, and um, it must be such a disruption in this environment that, you know, can possibly feel removed from time 
at certain points to have this technology, you know, up in their faces. Yeah. And we talked about performance in some of the early, like first few films as just like sort of a preoccupation for Wiseman. But uh, besides that sort of like um, performance that might be like a put on or some semblance of that, there is just, you know, prayers and sermon sermon are a performance yeah um like that's sort of like embedded into it um but uh yeah she's talked specific we should get into the potato peeler scene instead of just (laughs) potato peeler scene but but, uh she she talks about nalita talks uh about like uh her idea is that he seems very comfortable but in order to contextualize that we should talk about this uh, this the name scene which um has some interesting uh uh tensions to it but also just ideas running through it where we and it, it's we know it's central because like every all of our friends we've had on this show when they write about this film seem to really focus on that yeah yeah, scene, yeah. You know? yeah and and there's yeah there's so much going on in the juxtaposition it's, it's a beautiful little uh passage these two scenes but um uh so we have we have this like crotchety old uh monk brother wilford who's been there for years and uh the abbot um and the abbot kind of talking to him about uh um his uh, how he feels about being called certain first names and who's allowed to call him a first name and and what and the and the older uh the brother wilford is just very like sort of stubborn and isn't interested in having like an actual like you know civil discourse about it and uh in the middle of this, like you're just seeing him get like more and more frustrated, um, and just put up walls. And there's a fly that comes in to <laughs> and lands on his desk, and he like takes out the fly swatter and kills it, which uh, is funny in uh, a couple of ways. Like one is just like this great visual art- articulation of of his emotions at this point, you know, like that he just wants to like be rid of of whatever this is. Um, but I wondered, and this is probably like maybe a bit over the top, but like fly on the wall is like something that, <laughs> that Wiseman has always been like t- called and he's always took an umbrage with it. And I was like, I couldn't help but think like, I wonder if he like liked y- putting funny. that in there uh, as sort well, of like, yeah. I mean, the aesthetic, I mean, you, you bring up that, right? It's like one of those secret, really, really funny Weissman humor moments that are just like so perfectly captured the moment. But I mean, I think this is actually a great scene in terms of like, of course, we never know how or what is framed, but who cares if like it was it. But the setup of the sequence, right, where Brother Wilfred is all the way against the wall, there's, uh, I'm just looking at the shot right now, right? There's all these charts and things in the desk and the other abbot like filling the frame and his phone right he is literally cornered in the frame mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. way and um because of the nature of the room weissman i think he re- almost maybe once in the sequence he's able to cut to the facial reactions of the other monk but for the most part it's so dead center on this monk who's literally trapped in the frame and of course what's happening in the scene is it's i mean it's half interrogation 
half therapy and right it, it almost becomes a meta commentary right when he's like um there's the line where it's like uh the other monks trying to be like no i'm trying to uh tell you what you're saying and trying to give you a better example of how i might see this and then he's like no 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 that's not how it works at all i refuse <laughs> to see it that way yeah. your illumination is totally wrong and right it's partially the you know just even in terms of the frame the the space in terms of all this material that's separating these two monks who are in the same environment um but refuse to see their ideas the same which is the question of are we a community of people who truly know each other or not because brother wilfred's argument is only those who i grew up with who knew me before i was here truly know me and all of you even though we have the same goals and share values those aren't the same type of experiences or things that truly define me as a person and right so it's one of the things that's so interesting about a scene in this monastery right is it's because um it is separated from the real world quote unquote and yet the real world is spilling into it in so many ways (laughs) yeah and I think, um, you know, I guess, you know, this will dovetail into the next scene where where this same monk who is very stubborn and ornery um, acts very differently when buying a potato peeler. But um, he I lost my train of thought. <laughs> to all of us. I'm sorry. Um, take it away, Sean. I don't I'll figure um, it out. No, yeah. Like, it, well, it's funny because, like, I, I have to imagine, like, as somebody who is just watching these, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the brain of Fred Wiseman, but like you, it stepping back. Well, first of all, I love like that. We don't, we don't know why they're having this discussion. We like, how did this come up? It doesn't like, it doesn't really matter, but it is interesting to think about. And it's also interesting to think what he's making, what Wiseman is developing out of this like if you're just sitting there shooting like this scene and these people are talking about names like like i don't know the problem with a lot of documentary filmmaking contemporaneously is that they want the big issues talked about you know they want like they they want their themes to be punctuated uh like out loud and the way that wiseman is able to create not only with this scene and the next scene in juxtaposition but just this scene alone like how much is going on in this community with this discussion about first names is uh it's, it's incredible but um but yeah so so, so i think so um the thing that i think is really interesting again in in relation to the scene that follows is that he seems to really hold the title brother in in high regard right it's like something he's earned it's something he feels the other monks have earned and that they should address themselves as brothers and when um the next scene happens and he's you know in his civvies i guess you could call it right like like he he looks like a normal guy he even took his glasses off he kind of looks like a whole different kind of a more jovial person but like it's kind of like when I'm a monk, I'm a monk, you know, like, like, and we're all monks and we should act like monks. Um, it's, it's like separate, like he has a different name, right? It's brother Wilfred and it's Edward, you know, and these two separate people in in his mind. And I think, you know, there's probably, uh, the source of some of 
his uh, clashes with the younger generation of monks, the sort of hippie monks, right, who are more holistic in approach. Um, but but it it is like, you know, what a literal holier than thou sort of thing, right? Like like I'm a holy man. Yeah, I mean, we should say before this scene, we already get that tension, particularly with the um, the Japanese American monk who I mentioned, who we can see definitely has some sort of a ponytail like hair, so definitely feels like a person in the sixties, maybe twenty one, twenty two, extremely young, and um, the if not the first thing we see is him wanting to pray to the victims of Hiroshima, um, and Japanese internment, or am I misremembering this? I think he uh, victims of the bomb in Vietnam. Just victims maybe. of the bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And later he will um, reference draft dodgers, yeah. um, which obviously huge political issue of the time. And I'm sure within the brothers and I, I don't want to place brother Wilfred's political ideology at this time, but I could imagine him having <laughs> yeah. issues with um, praying for draft dodgers uh in some way right but i think the fact that we have that sort of moment earlier in the film already that gives a sense of oh these are not all the same monks and not all the same backgrounds is gonna really play into the tensions that i think he sees about why these developments of how um how he's going to be addressed and whether he sees what what makes someone a brother uh as being really important what so, something um, Nalita brings up <clears throat> right in the first paragraph that that was really sticking with me throughout the film is this sort of post '60s like commune uh, moment in which this film is is taking place, and that like like I was thinking you could do a, a solid double feature with Gimme Shelter, right? Like like you could see maybe that um, the Japanese American monk or some of the other kind of long-haired button chop monks um having been at altamont and becoming so disillusioned that they go and up and join a monastery right <laughs> well it's it's funny in relation to that kind of uh at that um shop where brother wilford goes to get the potato peeler um the guy you know he's just like the shopkeep is like joking with them and everything and like you know he knows where he is and where he's coming from and he he's has some line like oh yeah do you do all the brothers like do you know roll call on tap and like so you know uh it, it, it's a thing member pointed out like that it's a small small uh but significant like line to basic training um that that this makes and th- later there's something about a bugle call and all that but um yeah i mean it shows like sort of this this generational divide between between the two um also uh, i think uh barry keith grant was mentioning uh the song the like muzak version in the store of uh uh on the street where you live from my fair my fair lady and how mm-hmm. it's like this pop debasement of spiritual epiphany but but yeah it's yeah. so funny the whole transition from brother wilfred to edward right yeah. like like all of a sudden he's like strolling down the street it's like la cucaracha playing mm-hmm. in the background he's just like saying hi to passerbys on the sidewalk he's like oh can you tell me where to you know where the plastic bags are to like some random lady in the grocery store you know like it's um a, a transubstantiation you know almost yeah, the whole, I, I mean, again, like, as I said before, right, the idea of seeing someone outside of 
the workplace, even though we consider this quote part of the work. I mean, right. He is, I think it's, of course, like the part of the fascinating element is that he's not the one who's requested the potato peeler, but he needs to make sure it's the right potato peeler. He's got the drawing of the potato peeler, which feels like a very like um, you bring up Christian substantiation, right? Like uh, it, it reminds me of like Plato's cave or the not um, the I guess a little bit Plato's caves, but the allegory of like reaching spiritual levels of things of abstraction, right? Like, no, this physical one is not the potato peeler. This drawing yeah. is closer to the true <laughs> potato peeler. Like I a need. Ben, ben, Benjamin kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Trying to reach the sublime potato peeler. No, we've tried this one. This doesn't work. It doesn't feel right. Like I, I think there's so uh, many elements to that that feels like right. Like, and of course, this brother who we have a sense maybe doesn't love all of his brothers, but wants to make sure he gets the right one because he's been tasked with this by it, right? Like their material existence depends on uh, supporting each <laughs> other. And I can't be the one who comes back with the wrong potato peeler. Well, in this un- until, until a certain point where he admits, I'm not the one who's going to be peeling him. I don't care. Like, yeah. you know? But that's <laughs> part of it, right? That's, that's yeah. almost like, I think about Catholic Catholicism in so many years, right? It's like, y- even when you don't care, um, you still have like to invest in the care of others. I mean, this gets into like, max weber ideas of the protestant ethic and um the difference between the italian catholic states and germany but i feel like it's part of the core is that he is so invested in this even though he has no investment in this and yet that's like part of the you know the the calling of christianity right is to invest yourself in the assistance and help of others, even when you have no invest personal investment in yourself and the way that he takes so much tension. And of course it ends with him striking this sort of deal, uh, that he could, he can come return it for absolutely free later. Right. And like, that's going to be the solution to this. But I do think that that's an important element of, of how invested he is for something he does not care for. Yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, that the way that you uh, frame like him not wanting to be the guy who comes back with the wrong potato that sort of like obligation uh, does bring me back to uh, that idea of management and I which which I, I want to talk about at some point but um, the the idea of thinking about this place as your workplace or something you know mm-hmm. this this place where you don't have just a sublime obligation or this place that you go to f- to reach for the sublime but that you also have to you know pay your dues and put in the work you have to like not leave the rake out uh type of thing yeah um, I, th- I think it was in uh, nalita's piece that it was mentioned that this monastery only became independent a couple years ago and that this abbot was you know installed like a couple years ago and there could very well be resentment right from brother wilfred like maybe i should have been the abbot right and like this potato peeler moment is a moment where you know as um irrelevant as it might be like this is something that's his charge (laughs) that he has control over you know he's the one who's gonna pick what this is not that fucking abbot you know who's always breathing down my neck about people calling me the first name being okay (laughs) like yeah i mean because there is a top-down approach to this 
monastery like um and there's within that like he now has to be disciplined he has there's a lot of talk in this movie about being disciplined and what that means in various ways and um he now uh is like you know being held to a certain standard and so i was kind of wondering as this film was accumulating uh how this fits in with the way that we've previously talked about like diminished autonomy um and I, i don't know exactly um how like it's not as it, it's definitely grayer than the ones beforehand but i thought for a second like there's this lesson you know with the chalkboard scene where uh um, totally. they're talking about like the law according to the law and and the, uh, and the spirit and it's definitely something like i saw it like in a certain sense during my time at church is like this you know state's laws are in place because of god and therefore breaking the law is akin to sinning and that i mean that would have been interesting in this film but i think wiseman is wiseman's film is not that cynical but i mean we do see a desire from you know the point of view of the monastery for everyone there to adopt this discipline this ascetic discipline for the greater good of the community yeah and i think as you say sean right i think in terms of um the elements of the institution right that i think it's so interesting the monks retain their personalities um so strongly in this film because i mean um i mean in titicut follies i feel like we get a better sense of the inmates than the the caretakers all kind of mm-hmm. feel meshed together certainly in law and order i couldn't tell you one policeman from another except for the two who meet like a couple times and right. but like i don't have any sense of who they are what they feel and this is a film but of course this is an it's a profession that's all about how you feel how you work and i think as we're specifically told right it's about um opening yourself up and removing distraction and the point of discipline is to give yourself those opportunities to open yourself up to god right that is the actual point of being in the monastery is when you're in the outside world you have distraction you have politics you have um you know professional obligations you have all this stuff that eliminates your ability to have that moment when God can directly speak to you. And in the monastery life, we're trying to do our best to eliminate all those distractions, right? So, you know, obviously for those of us who just know, you know, monks in general, we think of like, you know, they're just eating bread and water and they probably eat a little better than that. But right, food is meant to be simple. Work is meant to be- Potatoes at least. Yeah. Potatoes, work is meant to be simple. Prayer is a huge part of daily life. And, you know, we're eliminating all the other distractions. And, of course, sexuality um, is being one of the key ones that never comes up, which, I, you know, might be something I wish he kind of maybe could have explored a little more um, carefully here. But, right, like, that's the point of the discipline. And yet discipline in terms of the physical um body and the working obligations still can't eliminate the personal discipline which seems to be the problem that these monks are facing at the center of themselves is that can they eliminate their own personalities because that's going to be the thing that's preventing them from god and it's of course all about interpersonal relationships that are then causing these things at the same time yeah there's there's a a brother says at one point something like uh people are both christians and individuals and it's the individuals that they have a problem with um but but what you're saying is also getting into the the mary and the martha speech that is um culminates this film 
um, and we see this abbot, uh, you know, giving this this speech, like sort of like one of the touchstones of a lot of Wiseman's films is a speech at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it's the abbot, uh, which is, you know, also, you know, we see like sort of bureaucracy visually inferred the way that he shoots this, you know, from from the this extremely like low angle that he just towers over and the whole black the the whole background is just like black so you just like see his him like popping out of of this like ominous shot and um i mean he he's giving this long sermon about mary and martha and how we have to live live with these these different parts of ourselves and and how to treat them and um martha is you know easily overwhelmed and concerned with what's directly in front of you and you know you could describe it as like the first or second tier in the expanding brain chart right and then mary is galaxy brain and she sees what's behind everything she you know she contemplates everything's meaning and and um and then that scene uh culminates in this like him actually looking into the camera and addressing and says like will you listen like will you listen which uh is I mean, we can talk about it if you guys want to, but it's it's a very powerful scene and a very strange one as well. The only just just a quick question. I'm trying to think of um, just because I know. What am I saying? Um, when is the moment where I feel like in a couple of the early films, Weissman does end on these, you know, I know he's ended in a lot of speeches, but usually it's a speech followed by um a series of I, I I just call them pillow shots pulling mm-hmm. from Ozu because they've always felt related to those ways mm-hmm. in terms of recontextualizing the space and uh you know I know especially in latter films he almost always does this and I feel has he been doing this in every film like this sort of ending I know that high school ends in the Vietnam yeah. uh letter but I forget if there's then a cut to the broader space or the community or if it does end on like that I moment think this is here, the first one um, which here is so jarring I think this is the first one yeah you think of like Monrovia and like the funeral kind of like capping off and there's a lot of like scenes or a lot of his movies later that are like you know ceremonies processions that end after a speech um and that's kind of like that's how the earlier ones are too you know you get the zoom out on the hospital um so i mean again that i mean that's why it's so strange because it seems so it seems so blatant it seems like such a confrontation with the audience that's that that was my feeling about this and why i wanted to ask about that yeah it's because and you know we talk about arlen you mentioned this as a transition in a film for weissman because we're gonna go from here to juvenile court uh primate which is very intense welfare meat which gets into unions and then um canal zone which is of course is a whole uh box of worms to open up for right but so it does feel it's it's again it brings me to this fascination that you know this film does feel like the culmination of where his career has been going at some point even though it's so removed from the context and the types of institutions he's looked at and it's like it is pulling um this tension between um this 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 you know whether community can really exist and work and operate um in you know a multi-racial coalition and this isn't even a multi-racial place we've got we've got the asian pacifists i think we see one 
uh, African American during the like, like healing hands on scene. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And otherwise, we've got mostly whites, and obviously a generational divide, which I think would have been like one of the huge, more prominent issues of um, the time for a lot of people um, in terms of um, how people really saw things. But I think like that's that's what makes it so fascinating in so many ways is that like the tension of this Abbott calling for as you suggest, Sean, like listening and opening up to each other and like opening up, not just to God, but to each other. And that's the, we cannot accomplish God until we accomplish ourselves here on earth kind of moment. Yeah. You, you wonder, um, he goes in, I think, and, and an audience might go in sort of expecting, um, a bunch of Mary's right. But we find all these <laughs> like broken Martha's essentially. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But in, in terms of like, you know, his his career in the films up until this point, it's like you almost get a sense that maybe he was trying to see, well, like, I've been doing this one kind of thing. Maybe I'll try this other thing out. And then it's like, well, no, maybe I'll go and just double down on that thing I was doing before <laughs> and do it longer and more intense. And uh, yeah, but but like, but also. I don't know. I, I guess like this is a question I, I would pitch to you guys. Like, what if this reminds you of any other Wiseman films? Because I definitely was reminded of Monrovia. Um, it, like, you know, during some of the meetings, especially you know the more gossipy one where they're talking about Wilfred, um, I thought of I thought of Monrovia meeting scenes. Um, yeah. Just of like you know the twenty plus I've seen that is probably the one this is most similar similar from from memory. But it's also about a tiny community. Um, they're they're you know and it's it's about the pressure to maintain the identity of that community, which is what much of Monrovia is about. Yeah. I mean, and also like, I think about that's what makes um, in Jackson Heights so fascinating, right. And from a very different perspective of an extremely multiracial and diverse um, neighborhood trying to maintain its identity of diversity at a time in which things are, you know, consolidating and collapsing and I, I think you see it a little in um from you know obviously Monrovia's cousin of Belfast Maine in terms of a community that's also seemingly divided by generational conflicts and mm-hmm. uh, a changing perception of what a community might be I think these are always really at the heart of um questions that Wiseman is trying to ask and look at and he's always dissecting it in really different ways that kind of um bring out just and I think the the real question I think for Wiseman is this is this a material condition of United States infrastructure policy social goods and obviously he's really really looked into a lot of different social programs that have been trying to help create a more solidified community or is this human nature at the end of the day because sometimes it feels like um a little bit of uh of both well i i i I wish that um we were able to see how this monastery supports itself like how how do they like because there are, you know, from my understanding of monasteries, you know, trading services and goods and getting donations and you have to do stuff in order to like, you know, provide for the people and, you know, keep the grounds and whatever. Yeah, I thought um, they brewed beer. Yeah, or <laughs> beer. Uh, that would have been cool because, I mean, you do see like, I mean, that's what City Hall is like all about uh, in a certain sense is like seeing, you know, people like negotiating how 
um, it's going to support itself. Um, but yeah, uh, I kind of wanted to throw throw it back to the beginning in order to sort of like ask you a question, uh, Peter, that we talked about mm -hmm. with with Adam Naiman, um, because there's this opening. Uh, there's this opening scene or one of the opening scenes where they're, they're talking about this like group session and talking about how, um, you know, there's varying and opposing, uh, opinions that he's talking about. And, um, he says like, how do these things work together? And what is the spirit trying to say through various tensions and, uh, watching, or, you know, now having watched the film and thought about it, it's, it's obvious. It, it, it seems like an obvious preface for, the qualities of this community, how it's going to maintain itself, and just like um, all that we've talked about. But I, I couldn't help but think at the moment of like how we talked about hospital, this surgeon mm -hmm. uh, scene of like, think about Wiseman be like coyly supplanting himself as, as the Lord in this moment and saying like, you need to figure out how these things fit together you need to think about like how these tensions and these varying opinions fit together to make a film that i'm trying to say and we talked with Naaman about like the right way to watch a, a wiseman film so i guess i wanted to ask you like um do you think or if for you is there like a right way to watch uh, a wiseman film and and like just generally how does that look like for you uh like how are you parsing a wiseman film as you're experiencing it for the first time i always believe that there's you know every everyone is so different in so many ways but right he's he's the master of synecdoche right these these parts that represent the whole and the parts are constantly changing and evolving and transforming and you get one sense and right like especially this is why the the longer weissmans are so fun and interesting to watch for the first time because you'll maybe be like an hour and a half in and it's like oh I think I, I think yeah. he know what he's going for, and then yeah. you watch the next scene, and it feels like you know this throwaway scene. It's like, oh, I think I really, really know what he's going for, and then you kind of just catch the vibes and go with mm. it. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I think about this with um, New York Public Library, which I argue is a film really um, kind of that builds on the problems presented by Jackson Heights of a diverse community of how does an institution support someone who. Uh, a community that has so many different types of people in it, which everyone needs a library, but everyone needs a library for a very different reason. And in the middle of that film, about two hours in of its four hours, there's a scene where a woman um, is teaching senior citizens how to properly dance. So they exercise enough and, you know, keep their bodies in shape. And it's all about helping people see these otherwise hidden elements that an institution can support someone that I felt is so key for that film. And I think it's a little difficult with sometimes these earlier films because you're spending so much time just getting used to the institutions and its rhythms that you don't necessarily um, catch those elements. But I think that's also kind of what's so beautiful and unique about this film i mean the one um parable we haven't talked about oh, yeah. briefly talk, is the story of the dance and the lights and the and the man and the woman i want to tell you a story of a man and his beloved the beloved took him into his own city into the house his own very house in his own very city and the man was very happy with the beloved and while he was there in the garden with Beloved, he heard much noise, music, laughter, shouting. 
some of it very confusing on the outside of the garden. And the beloved took him to one side of the garden and he looked out over the wall and he saw many people dancing and shouting and running about. And he saw much sparkling light coming from them. And he thought how beautiful and he asked who they were. And the beloved said, they are new people to my city. And they're very noisy and loud, but very happy. And then they walked to the other side of the garden and he looked out over another part of the city and the city was a bit quieter there. But these people were dancing with a slow tread and very, very quietly. There was a solemnity about them. And as they danced, a great glowing sparkle came from them too. And the beloved said, these are the older people of my city. They've been here for many, many years. They've lived here for a long time. Some of them have been here since the city was built. And the man said, I would like to know your people better. They must love you very much. And so the beloved invited all the people of the city to come into his garden. And when they had come into his garden, he introduced the man to the elders of the city. These elders were very aristocratic, very wise. And when they looked upon the man, he was almost blinded by the glow from their face. They bowed to him and embraced him, and then they went and sat in the seats of wisdom that were there in the garden for them. And then the beloved introduced him to the new element, the young people of the city. And when they looked upon him, they sparkled and laughed. And then he introduced them to the other people, and they looked upon him and bowed gracefully and murmured. And then they began to dance. But their dances were very strange. And they turned, and some of them, every, as they began to turn, he began to lose the sparkle from these people. And he became very upset about it because these people did not dance the same type of dance. And as they turned one to the other, they got very unhappy with each other, and they began to push at each other and pull at each other. They'd push each other out of the way so that they could dance their dance better. And the man turned to the beloved and said, stop them, make them all dance the same dance. But the beloved only smiled sadly and looked upon him. And then the man turned to the elders of the city and said, surely you, as aristocrats and elders, would not allow all this confusion and chaos. Stop them. Make them dance the same dance. Look, the sparkle is gone. All the sparkle is gone. I see very little of it. And the elders smiled and nodded, but did nothing. And so the man became very angry, very angry indeed. He became very bitter at the elders for doing nothing about this. And he grabbed a hold of the cloth of the garment of his beloved and pulled him towards all of these people dancing and said, come, you must come with me into the middle of all these people and help me. You must make them dance the same dance. And he pulled and he got into the middle of all these people with all the confusion and the chaos. And he got very angry with them and began pushing and pulling. And as he pushed and he pulled, he ripped the garment and he lost his beloved somewhere in all this mess. It finally became so painful for him and so confusing that he had to crawl out of all these legs and arms and all this trouble and chaos and all this noise and confusion. And he climbed up on the top of a tall tower inside the garden. And when he looked down, he saw in the middle of all this dancing, his beloved, where he had pushed him, and his beloved was 
broken and crippled where he had pushed him down. And he looked at the people dancing. And when he saw them all dancing together, it was very beautiful because they went circles within circles. And then they stopped dancing and they all looked at him and he saw the sparkle all again. Because it was their eyes that were sparkling. All of their eyes turned in one direction, sparkled. But when they turned their eyes to each other, he didn't see the sparkle. Did they? And he was very unhappy. He was so sad. He was brokenhearted because he had crippled his beloved. He had lost something. He had broken his heart. And so he threw himself off the tower. And his own body was broken. He is unhappy. He's lost. He's wounded. Crippled himself now. How shall he be healed? Do you know anybody like that in here? Surely there must be somebody here that you know like that. Somebody you might know. Well, if you don't, you're looking at somebody like that right now. Which is like that, it, you know, it comes to all the issues we've been talking about in terms of forming community because it's about a man who wants all the people to dance together in the right way because the lights are so beautiful if they do that. And he works so hard to make this happen and he loses his woman and then kills himself at the end of the story, um, which is like that is not a christian story i have ever heard everywhere and i think it's key right like most of the stories we hear are parables from the bible the you know um the mary story and even some of the stories that they right we're hearing stories that if we're christians we have heard in some way shape or form now i have never heard this story before and it, it is the one that i think i really stood up and you know kind of have this moment and it also ends with a very curious parallel because when he collapses at a, as i talked about before it reminds me of earlier in the film when we see um another abbot surrounded by hands and praying and community right There's these moments of energy and spirit that come out of um the I used to do history of um, Christian mysticism and right these what's called the ecstatic moment. These moments where you get so worked up and emotional and tied, and then you see God and experience Him, and you suddenly collapse. And so we get this little rhyme in the film, a little bit between those, but it helps me think about that story as key to these relationships. That it's the moments that bring the community entirely physically together and you watch how Weissman organizes these people and shows them surrounding and holding each other right mm -hmm. and these are the moments that are almost the most important and crucial and it has to happen but as the story suggests it only happens through tragedy itself and that's sort of what is always in the tension here of this film is these people who I get the sense many of them are marched by tragedy we don't see or hear about. And that's, sure. I think, right. really, really important. And so yeah, I mean, I... we get the, we get the, just quickly, we get the um, Abbott talking at the end about, like, his father's, like, alcoholism yep. and, and abuse, like, for yeah. sure. And so I think that's what we're, when we talk about the best way to watch for a Weissman film, right? I think, I think I'm always looking for those moments that I might think, 
here's the thesis, here's the thing that's representing the whole. But also knowing then what Weissman loves to do is do point counterpoint, point build. You use the word accumulation. Um, you know, sometimes it's about scenes that are, you know, clash right against each other. Sometimes it's about building. And I think really, I always come back to the story of the elephant and the, you know, the five men touching a part of it is we're all going to come away with a little bit something slightly different. And, but that's what really what makes this film so curiously because it curious is that it's about people all reaching toward the same thing, God, and but all trying to experience or get to it in a very different way. And the tensions right. that are there between them is the issue that prevents mm -hmm. each one of them from reaching God. <clears throat> Sorry, that was long. No, that was great. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. I, I, you brought something up, though, that I hadn't really thought about um, in terms of how we watch Weissman and the difference between watching a film like Ex Libris, which is, you know, about a familiar subject like the public library and some of these earlier films. And I'm wondering just if we can consider what impact watching a film like, you know, Monrovia or City Hall at a Fest or, you know, in its art house run or on PBS today and what us going to, to this era before we were alive and trying to parse out these institutions, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies, and like what impact that has in in how we're reading it and how we're engaging and like what kind of meanings we're drawing. Yeah, I mean that's that that's the that's the the trick. I mean, like we're we're sort of like when we look at something like a scene, we're given hindsight, but also like we lose the immediacy of the moment. Um, and like you know, when people watch City Hall in the middle of the Trump or at, towards the end of the, the Trump uh, era, they like are projecting so much onto that film that won't be projected uh, for better or worse 20 years down the line. I mean, and I think it's also, it's the best and worst part of Weissman is just how cryptic every interview he's ever given is. I mean, it's actually really interesting <laughs> to read. I'm sure you have read the, the early interviews um, that he's done in Film Quarterly and whatever around this era, the ones where he talks more about funding, the ones where he's like, oh, well, because I'm working with public tax support institutions, I don't have to get um, certain waivers and things because of the public knowledge element of it, right? Like, I, I love those early interviews because he's a little more candid. And now he's become extremely cryptic about his feelings and ideas. And I think it's interesting, right, because... As I mentioned before, the earlier films, I feel like the political bent is so there in terms of where his ideologies lie, obviously in Titicut, obviously with mm -hmm. ending with Nixon and Law and Order. Um, Hospital's the first one where I feel he's almost shifting more toward what we might call a liberalism in terms of support of the state institution knows better than the people who actually use it, um, although the tension's still there. And that's really going to continue into... Um, juvenile court welfare is that attention that tension between what the state represents and the subjects it serves and i think that's what makes his film so interesting because i think they're highly political without not being necessarily engaged in the political issues that um we read about on the new york times every day yeah, there's also something to the fact that he doesn't do research or at least stopped after the first few before he go, before going there and sort of allowing himself to be open to, to what's given. Um, 
but uh, so kind of touching on it, uh, but as somebody who's interested in law and film, like, are you like, have you gone into the titty cut case? No, um, particularly because it's such a different subject of law than oh, the I stuff see. I work on, though I'm about to start possibly working in a project on um, right to privacy and nonfiction and fiction adaptations. Um, so it's and it's I mean, I think it's what I would teach my students is the thing is that um, the laws are one things, but the but the ethics of documentary are a completely different subject. And right. I think one of the things that I at least with even my introduction students, when I want them to think about nonfiction cinema is I want them to think about um, what are the ethical lines that a that a documentarian has to the subjects it represents? So you know, I'll show them clips from early um, Flaherty films and other educational films like Africa Speaks, right, where they're often narrated by the white filmmakers of these colonial subjects and just to kind of present mm-hmm. things and then we get through different blurring and lines or interviews actually spaces where you know we actually create more agency for the um for the subject or are we actually limiting that agency in some ways and i think especially since the advent of reality tv um things have changed so much in those ways and that's <laughs> i mean but this is what makes wiseman so exciting and thrilling is because he eschews all those easy ways we can subscribe agency to the subjects we're looking at um but then it's still presenting issues that we have to work through to think about are these people being presented fairly or not and i've never walked away from a weissman film feeling any subject was unfairly represented i think that's one of the actually what makes him one of the true masters is um whether he's you know presenting a subject um where he feels one way or another um and there's a diversity of people in it. I've never walked away felt like I think he unfairly represented that person. And I think it goes to say that um, there's never been an interview or controversy in any of his films where someone said I was unfair, unfairly represented by Frederick Weissman in this documentary, which people could do all the time and tweet and things. But it's yeah. never happened, which I think that really speaks to his mastery of the form. And it, it speaks to the, um, you know, people call these films like the Rorschach test, right? Like it's, it's, you can imprint upon it, you can take from it, you know, what you think it means. But like, like we said uh, in, in an earlier episode, you know, the, the administrator of um, the Boston public school systems thought high school represented, you know, a good, solid functioning school, school yeah. you know, like, like, so, so even the people who Weissman might be holding up for, you know, I don't think ridicule is the right word, but criticism, um, and people who the audience, uh, you know, relatively left-leaning audience might uh, tend to criticize or ridicule, you know, um, those folks, you know, are saying what they believe. And that's all that Weissman's taking is them, you know, professing their beliefs as uh, honestly as as they want to put it out in the world. Because, you know, a lot of... Uh, long unbroken shots a lot of long you know continuous speeches um you know there's the famous documentary adage every cut is a lie right and um when you allow these 
durational conversation speeches to play out in entirety, you know, there's very little room for manipulation, right? And you're really just giving people an opportunity to express themselves as they do freely in the world. Yeah, and I think it just draws, you know, when people, uh, obviously in the last few weeks that um, before we're recording this, there's been a whole discussion of this Anthony Bourdain doc made by Morgan Neville, which has come over ethical issues for um, two particular allegations, one about using certain AI to recreate voice of emails, and then a second one to, um, uh, in terms of the representation of a, a woman, Asia Argento, the actress slash director who... Um, and her relationship with Bourdain and how characters get to play and face. And, you know, I think it, you know, the lines between journalism and documentary are very different. I think people were right to kind of point that out, but I think there's still um, that the great documentarians don't need to make their subjects feel like garbage to, in order to critique them or even make allegations about their behavior and ideas. And I think, as you point out, that, that, Weissman spends time doing things. He really cares. I don't know how long his shooting process was for this film and like how much he pulled and excised, but like, right, these these films take so much time to make. That's why he's such a slow, methodical filmmaker. I mean, it's always surprising that he can even shoot one in a year. And or, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess at least edit one in a year. Um, but like, he really is looking for those moments to make sure that like, I've given the full breadth of ideas. I've given the full articulation of where someone comes from. Um, You know, I've really gotten the sense. I mean, just to talk about a scene where people get to talk their ideas. And one of my favorite camera movements in this film is when the... um, the abbot's outside talking to, or not the abbot, one of the brothers is outside talking to one of the sisters and having this huge emotional experience. And um, for most of it, it's set on um, the sister's face, but at a certain time, Weissman finally moves around and moves in. We see the tears on his face. And right, we talked about a little bit the performativity of these brothers and the relationship to the camera. And that really, though, felt like a moment to me where Weissman realized that he needed to make sure that he was representing this monk fairly by capturing the emotions on his face and by not emphasizing his, by only capturing him in profile as he was before, he was actually losing something in terms of what was important to fairly represent this person. And that's an emotional choice as much as an aesthetic choice, as much as it's an ethical choice. And that's what makes this so exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, uh, and because you brought up Roadrunner, I'll, I'll, like in order to talk about Wiseman, I'll, I'll piggyback and say like the not including Asia Argento as like uh, his reasoning was something like I didn't want to get into like he said she said, and it's like you see you watch a film from Wiseman and where you're able to include all voices and you're still able to get your point across to the craft of documentary filmmaking, <laughs> like there's just clearly a a chasm between like it's this idea that including something the filmmaker is arguing what that person is saying right like like you can't you can't uh have a scene in your film that doesn't articulate something you agree with which you know as we see in weissman is just like a nonsense idea yeah um so uh peter do you have any like uh favorite Wiseman films just just generally that um stick out to you oh I mean 
all that. I mean, I again, I did have some, I wouldn't say problems because like, who cares? This film came out in 1972. Frederick Weissman's not going to hear this and be like, I'm upset that Peter didn't love this film as much as I do. <laughs> um, I do wish this film was longer and that there was more uh, of some yeah. of those structures. I think it was almost um, missing that stuff. I mean, uh, God, I love the store. The store in terms of mm-hmm. just like the blatant moments of like pure capitalism run amok is just like almost insane. And of course has so many just weird, um, crazy moments. Um, I mean, it's funny. I would love to revisit it now that um, I technically work there, but I really want to visit at Berkeley because that was really the first one for me that really taps me into Weissman and I think is made, I think when we think about ones that actually are really, really tied to their historical moments and are going to be actually kind mm-hmm. of inseparable from it, right? At Berkeley about a film about an extremely quote unquote liberal institution right at the height of the recession, trying to be a conservative institution and seeing how all those elements go from top up all the way to bottom down is one that um, uh, really, I just, took to when i first saw it um and it's the really... meetings with in that movie with the dean the dean is like the... those meetings are just like delicious yeah. cinema when, when i um when i used to vote in like critics polls and everything i did list him as a uh, best supporting actor that year <laughs> but, and i and i think that's actually something i always argue for for um, people who are still working critics is like you should include documentary performances in your acting categories as we've said these are performances they are relationships they are crafted by editing just in the same way that editors craft performances of professional actors and i think kind of calling attention to those is Mm -hmm. um really exciting i mean i'll say like a lot of filmmakers i still have probably over half to see i've got a lot of Mm -hmm. blind spots i'm excited by that i you know as long as i don't lose my canopy axis uh you know i try and get a, a few in a three or four in every year um this year i've done primate the final scene with the the and the jet is just one of the all-time just like (laughs) insane moments and um uh i really should do city hall soon um because i spent on my list to do Um, oh and i watched zoo this year which um i watched with my girlfriend promising that it would be a very very nice um delightful experience of a zoo and then it's like well here's a baby dead rhinoceros and the head so right he's always just throwing you curveballs and that's what what makes him just like indelible in terms of the pantheon and there's no there's no one like him in non-fiction filmmaking and there's no one like him in fiction filmmaking it's just there is just weissman yeah (laughs) and and having seen those the having seen the the later ones like the, a lot that you mentioned that span it that that does make watching some of these earlier ones that makes it sort of like the hardest part is being like ah, i wish you were i wish you were there yeah i wish these were all three hours four hours right yeah which yeah you should get to city hall because i mean it's four hours long it's just like yep. there's so many great scene, meetings well scenes. also you brought up the store which you know is is a terrific film that i love um but like um the garden is is similar territory and and both of these both of these films these later films are like i do think relate to a scene in this sense of like you know what is like the predominant like american ideology and the spirituality of capitalism and commerce Mm -hmm, you know like like i think all these things are intertwined and are a, a constant um 
interest for Weissman. Yeah. And one other film that might compare well to a scene is uh, is Missile, um, the 1988 mm-hmm. film about the um, people who work at um, one of the ICBM silos, um, I believe in near Santa Barbara, California, somewhere around there, um, because that's a film where, and it has a lot of actually church scenes as well, but that's a film where it's actually so critical and part of the goal of that film is showing how people need to all subscribe to the exact same ideals Mm -hmm. beliefs values and literal physical movements and mental movements um right so it's a film where tragic there is no room for error in terms of having any break out of like what is uh, what is very a, a Reaganite Christian mythology at the same time? It's about the military movements and right. I think that could actually compare really, really well with the scene in terms of yeah. right the the similarities trying to be achieved that are always failing versus a space where oh no, it is everyone is achieving at that level and the sort of scariness of that complacency that is absolutely necessary for that community to function. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a great point. I didn't think about that connection. but And maybe that goes back to what I was thinking about, like how does a scene uh, deal with diminished autonomy? And maybe like in juxtaposition between these two films, the answer is that they're not as good as actual institutions at creating docile people. Yeah, only, only the military, baby. Yeah. Yeehaw. Yeah. Actually, well, you know, uh, you talk about something... Uh, I wish Weissman was in like 1875. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine any Weissman film if he had started before 67? How and like, if, like if, talk about someone who if like if, if talk about the meme, the time travel. It's like here, Frederick Weissman, take this time machine and go back with oh, um, your sound crew and and film history that's i mean he would have done a whole he would have done four movies on the wpa alone probably oh be incredible um well thanks for coming on peter this is uh really fun to talk about with you oh i'm so glad i wasn't sure where this conversation was gonna go because this is a weird weissman movie on its surface and yet i think we've um scratched a lot of surfaces that showed a lot of connections and links and isn't that the most beautiful part and it was really fun to talk to you both thank you so much yeah we'll talk to you later you with my blood. 
I love you. Cleave to me in love. I will be with you always. I shall never forsake you.